What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Mortcast part of the CSG Network. This is actually the first episode of what I'm liking to call the Gen X movie show, or excuse me, music show, not movie show. The Gen X movie show is something else. This we're doing, we're going to be talking about music. So uh, this is the first episode of that. And as always, we're presented by DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app. Uh, before I get started, I'd like to talk to you about Blanchard Family Wines, located between 18th and 19th in Blake and Wansee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. Uh, if you like wine like me, like right now, right now, I am having some of the 2017 Blanchard Cabernet from Sonoma County. It's really good. It's called the Fire Cabernet, and it's fire for many reasons, as the kids would say, because it's good. Um, I... If you want to like go to the dairy block and experience socially distanced wine drinking, go to Blanchard Family Wines. Uh, the dairy block's great. You can get a reservation, have you spaced out tables. They got Pinot, they got Cabernet, they got uh, Rieslings from a partnership with some Western Slope wineries, one called Storm Cellar. That's really good. I don't really like Rieslings, but I had one when I came in there and it was really good. They also have a bunch of meats and cheeses, basically the whole wine tasting experience. Once again, Blanchard Family Wines, located between 18th and 19th and Blake and Wazi in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. When you go in, tell them Jeff Morton from CSG Podcast sent you there. I'd also like to talk to you about my friend Andy Feinstein and uh, his Exto Event Center. Yes, uh, they are actually holding events there. Uh, for people who want to be reasonably socially distanced, uh, Exto Events has you covered. And uh, before, uh, okay, here we go. Um, <laughs> I can't, I'm, I'm looking for my read. This is the worst, this is the worst uh, ad read ever. Okay, uh, please support our friends at the Exto Events Center located in Denver's vibrant Rhino Arts District. Exo Event Center can host safe socially distanced events for 25 to 175 persons outdoors and up to 100 persons indoors. If you are interested in hosting an event or a corporate gathering, fundraiser, client appreciation, birthday or anniversary party or you know, a morale boosting party, which is what we all need right now, go to Exto. Exto would welcome the opportunity to be part of whatever you envision. Please visit extoevents.com for more information and book your private event today. Now, oh, so many reads. Done with that for now. Uh, this is a new thing I'm starting here, and I'm really looking forward to it. And to get us all like ready for the Gen X music show experience, I'd like to introduce you to two really, really good friends of mine. In fact, two of my best friends. Uh, first off, uh, a co-owner of Carefree Cuisine, a great, great uh, top eight allergen-free uh, food foodery here in Denver. My friend Patrick, how are you, Patrick? I'm great, Morty. Great to be here with you today on your first Gen X music show. Music and show, uh, yeah, and uh, thrilled to talk about one of our favorites. Yes, uh, Carefree Cuisine, uh, brand new. You opened uh, about a like January, right? Yeah, well, uh, exactly. We uh, we have an allergen-free food production facility mm -hmm. that opened in January for production, and uh, we have uh, chef-crafted small batch uh, delicious frozen meals that uh, you are welcome to come by and see me at any time at 3615 South Bold in Littleton, Colorado, um, at our retail store, or we're, uh, we also offer uh, free overnight shipping at carefreecuisine.com, but uh, top eight allergen-free meals, all uh, delicious. I have no allergies but i love all of these meals so uh check it out 
as they're 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 I've heard they're great. I haven't had them yet, but uh, uh, they uh, I've heard very good things about how tasty they are specifically. So uh, that is the most Thank important you. thing with those things. Uh, my no next doubt. my next guest is a um, legendary magician by, who, by the name of Magnus, and he has a book that he recently published called How to Make a Living as a Professional Magician. Uh, business first, sleight of hand later. And uh, this, uh, this guy's one of the most intelligent, well-read, uh, just amazing people that I know. Magnus? The most. Magnus? By the, way, by the way, the first chapter in my book was titled uh, Avoid a Global Pandemic if you want work. <laughs> That's step number one. Wow. Huh? I bet, it was, I bet it was read by many. Wait. Flying so, off the shelves, folks. Flying so, off the shelves. so you're saying no one read this pre-2020. Uh, Otherwise, we wouldn't be here right now. <laughs> uh, so, uh, uh, great to be here. Thanks for... Yeah. I, uh, look, uh, I, I have to make this all uh, formal and everything. But quite frankly, I've known you two far too long for this to happen. So we're just going to fall into... And by the way, you, they're going to call me Morty a lot. And, uh, and other iterations of Morty, <laughs> yes, the yes. greatest surname to ever be gifted to longtime <laughs> friends. I've known these guys for a quarter century, so there's just the, the the formalities are gone at this point. Okay, we're you're here to talk about you two. Yes, the band from Ireland. Actually, one guy from Wales, but you know the band that's mostly from Ireland. And I kind of wanted to... They're an I, Irish rock band. <laughs> the Irish rock band. And I kind of wanted to go over this because I was expi- inspired by the podcast uh, review too. And uh, they were coming at talking about you two from a very uh, millennial perspective, which I honestly had never heard before uh, because we are all in our own, you know, generational bubbles at time. And we don't really uh, think about, you know how other people would perceive music that came out while we were consciously aware of the music and it was coming out. And I kind of want to go over like coming in uh, to you two mid nineties and where the band transitioned from that. They're arguably their most creative peak with Octung baby through Zuropa to what they transitioned to in the later nineties. And it really does start with passengers, which is how would you both, I mean, how would you both describe Passengers? Uh, it, is it a U2 project? Is it a Brian Eno thing? Is it, what would you say? Pat, I'll go with you first. Well, at the time, it was new U2 like material, which was exciting. Because I, I, I mean, I'm glad you teed it up there, Morty, um, that uh, in the mid-90s is when I discovered U2. Like, I had to discover the bands that I love now on my own and through my friends when I was a teenager. I didn't grow up with them. And I'm a little bit younger than some people, but, I, you know, I'm at the tail end of Gen X. Um, so I discovered U2, like, after Octum Baby, um, after Zuropa, and then I went backwards and loved all those things and was waiting for new material. And Passengers came out. And I got to say, at the time, it seemed, like, super, like um, – uh, it's kind of like brooding and slow in a, a lot of their songs. And it's a very much like a conceptual type production. Um, looking back on it, uh, you know, I hate to say it, but I think it's terrible in a lot of ways. Like there's a few great tracks, like Your Blue Room, of course, is the yeah. track to pull from that yeah. disc. Or uh, It was a disc at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I encourage uh, everyone to look at that as like a U2 song. But that album in general, I don't even consider it in like the arc of U2. I know the... The, the, the way in which I love you two uh, today. 
but at the time it was new material and I was happy to hear some, some new, new tunes that were like, um, contemporary. Well, it's interesting because Matt, you, I remember vividly, and this is how long Matt and I have known each other. Uh, in the mid nineties, I wasn't, my relationship with YouTube had gone, had, had waned. Uh, I loved them through basically rattle and hum, which, it's weird because I think one of the most embarrassing moments in, in YouTube history comes on that album. Um, oh boy. Edge play the blues. <laughs> it's just so bad. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but I remember vividly Matt saying, Morty, gotta listen to Mural Brew Room. You'll like it. You'll like it. Just listen to your blue room. And I, and I, and I did, I listened to your blue room and I liked it. Um, but it wasn't really indicative of uh, the rest of that experiment. It was really kind of a uh, more of a standard fair kind of song. What was, was that your impression of it at the time, Matt? Um, I, you know, my experience with Passenger was pretty interesting. I got it a week before it came out by mm. an accident. Mm. Some Sam Goody and Fort Lauderdale had shelved it, put it on the shelf before they were supposed to, and I happened to catch it before they realized what they had done. So I took it home and I listened to it. I had it about a week before my friends and I was excited about it because I loved the movie Heat. And I knew that there was a track or at least a snippet of one of those songs in Heat. And I, I love that movie and I love that piece of music. Um, and then, you know, you put it on and you spin it. And then back in those days, we would listen to an album multiple times before yeah. we, you know, pass judgment. And I thought it was really smart that they titled it, um, soundtracks yeah it really gave like the, the the style of the music you know if you think of it as accompaniment for motion pictures even if they're fictitious motion pictures it makes more sense if you come at it like i think pat did and a lot of people did as like oh this is a new u2 album you were bound to be disappointed yeah. so i would say I, I appreciated it for what it was at the time i love the track slug uh, it's so that's the other one and and kind of odd and and bizarre and beautiful um i thought that was an ex a successful experiment a lot of them were less so your blue room is a classic u2 song i actually don't think it belongs on passenger i think that should have been on yeah. pop or zeropa or whenever they recorded it it's a lot my, different my, from the rest of it yeah my recollection is that they decided to um take the partnership with brian eno to the farthest extent that they could, you know, heretofore he had been a producer and, and they basically made him like a fifth member of the band. And so a lot of those tracks were generated from jams that they had with Brian Eno. Mm -hmm. And it tell you, it's a Brian, it feels more like a Brian Eno album than it, it does. does. You, so sure. does Europa though. I mean, no, I disagree with you there. You really, why do you disagree? Because it really, that didn't Europa just sound like, didn't it start? With Eno, I mean, isn't it just like, wasn't it Eno and The Edge and uh, uh, Bono? And then it just kind of morphed into a band thing? Or am I thinking, or was that Passengers that did that? I think you're thinking of Passengers. Right. I mean, Zeropa is definitely a Euro sounding album, mm -hmm. but it definitely is still a U2 album. It's still way more melodic and there's a lot more catchy phrases and melodies on there than you would find in any standard Brian Eno album, I think. This is true. Um, but yeah, Passengers was interesting at the time. I, the only tracks I ever listened to from it now are Slug and Your Blue Room. 
Not even but, Miss Sarajevo? Yeah, that seems to be the song that endures from that album, but I, I, never, I don't Mr. often return. Oh, pardon me. It was garbage. <laughs> oh, it was boy. so pretty. You know, it's like the Bono went through a period there where he was trying to like do as many duets and you know, yeah, Pavarotti and Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson, and Cash yeah. and Mary you know, J. Blige and Oh Frank's my god, don't remember Wyclef Jean. <laughs> he was yeah. on that Sinatra duets album. I mean, there was a time where he just wanted and I guess that actually started with Rattle and Hum when they wrote the BB King into there for some reason. Love for sure. Yeah. For sure. But, but uh, I was not a fan of Miss Sarajevo, but I, I know a lot of people liked it. I think it was the only song from that al- that album that made like top 40 lists, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and I believe it was later than just, you know, included in live shows and uh, kind of became part of the YouTube catalog. Definitely. Much more so than anything else on that album. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I think they even played it, as I recall, in the Elevation Tour pretty yeah. regularly. Well, it's interesting to kind of look back on this because you, they drift into pop from there, which was a much like not as angsty as Octong Baby was, obviously, but it was certainly a fraught recording process. And I, I've wanted to make this statement to you guys for a long time. YouTube's exper- yeah. YouTube's ex- experimental stuff seems to s- exist entirely uh, with the like the notion of getting like limiting the role of Larry Mullen. <laughs> it's- yeah. It's everything that, that is like we're, we're getting edgy and experimental and it's just almost entirely all Larry's kind of an afterthought. And that's that. That's it. That's what well, kind of bugs me about that period. I mean, it goes back to the fundamentals of you too. There's Bono and there's Bono and the Edge and then there's Adam and Larry and they've done their own projects together separately, all of them and those breakdowns and whatnot. And I think that, you know, they're all mates from late grade school or early secondary school or whatever. Um, but there's definitely a, like a hierarchy of who, who sounds like contribute, but their best work is when they all come together. Adam Clayton's bass lines and some of those songs on Zeropa, on Octung Baby, on all, all their albums, you know, are some of the best like rock and roll bass tracks you'll hear. And uh, Larry, I think their differential to Larry in certain ways is kind of like the father of the band you know he's i think he's slightly older and he's kind of like very straight laced and he's not he's as a pinup model right <laughs> and he's not as eager to indulge in some of the um sort of uh philosophical endeavors that certainly bono and definitely also the edge are well are happy to entertain magnus you can talk about this um and i've been i've been not go doing the full Magnus. I've been calling him Ma. Um, but there is a, there's kind of this, like with pop, he can't, he didn't, he have like back surgery or something like that before, before pop. I think that and, came a lot later. No, Larry I think Mullen. it was before. Yeah. Larry, oh, Larry. Was, yeah, yeah. Larry Mullen. He had back surgery. No, no, not Bono. Not Bono falling off the stage, you know, and getting attacked. Oh, he, it was a bike. Parts. He fell off a bike. Or as Matt, Matt liked to point out, and I mean, I'll just tee you up for your comment on there if it's at the tip of your tongue. But he broke yeah, his back um, trying. I, my, my feeling on Larry is that the band is best when he's the focus of the music. I think Daniel Lanois said it best. He had, and there was this great documentary called The Making of the Joshua Tree. And Daniel Lanois, great producer, worked with him on tons of albums said you know that 
Larry is a really special drummer and he tries to bring Larry out in the mix and they always try to start with Larry. And I think you can tell that best albums have that focus and the most um, diffuse albums tend to put Larry in the, in the background. Yeah, one of their, I mean, if you think about his drum line on like uh, Sunday Bloody Sunday, which uh, is an iconic U2 song, no matter how you feel about it now. Um, but that, uh, that Larry Mullen Jr. Uh, drum beat is the soul of that song. It is. And, and what occurs to me when we transition into pop is that Larry was not part of the initial recording sessions because he was, from what I understand, he was recuperating from some sort of surgery. I think it was his back. And then he like comes in and says, all right, you, you guys have just done nothing but loops here. And then apparently he recorded his own loops uh, and they played them uh, on pop along with his natural drums. And what I'll say about pop is in hindsight, I like the album a lot more than I did. Obviously, as you guys know, as Pat and I drove to Colorado Springs from Grand Junction and uh, I, I wasn't a fan of uh, the constant playing of pop at the time, as you will know. But, uh, it was current. It was current. It was current at the time, yes. But uh, I, I just was like, my thing with that was like, his, his drums were really present, but they weren't there. And it was strange. And they became the slaves to the way they were trying to produce the album rather than make consistent songs. And some of their worst songs are on that album and i think a lot of it is because they just they just there was half baked and yeah, um, yeah. Uh, an Go exception is if god will send his angels i love that song it's a Which great they... drum track it's really hammered out you can tell that that song that had the composition of that song included larry mullen you can tell because yeah. the drums are right there edge is right there locked in with them it feels like a drum track and it's also i think the best song on the album uh, hard to argue with that, but I think the thing about that album is consider like the first single, you know, Disco Tech. Um, it was, you know, the song that was all over the airwaves, you know, that year, 1997. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was the bumper music coming in and out of the World Series and like all that kind of stuff. It had like this hook, but you two like acknowledged they were very much looking into that sort of new techno dance, electronica sound coming out of Europe. And that's what was the, um, the main emphasis of when the way that they put those tracks together. And so the songs that survive out of that are the ones that survive in spite of that indulgence, like God, if God would send his angels, um, you know, kind of steps out of that, like electronica influence that they were clearly under. Um, and it was like, an, yeah, gone. Great song as well. Yeah. I mean, I could pick some great tracks out of that, but I'll say, I'll just quibble with you a little bit, Morty. I, I don't think that album stands up that well. Um, yeah. especially compared to a lot of their albums and even some of their older albums, you listen to them and you can be like, I get why this is rivet, you know, a riveting musical composition. Um, but pop it's spotty and there are some good pulls, especially for a good U2 fan, some deep, they almost seem like deep traps because you can pull in there. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel, I feel like pop the same way I feel about rattling home. It was an experiment that failed, but there are some interesting things that came out of that failure. You know, they rattle on home. They tried to make a blues album, not even close, but there's still some gems on there. And I feel the same way about pop. Unfortunately, pop doesn't have some really enduring classics like Angel of Harlem or All I Want Is You. 
you know, those are the really good songs that are on Relatal Hum elevate it tremendously. Yes. But nothing of that similar quality for pop. But I do feel like it was a, a failed experiment. You know, they wanted to make an electronic album, not even close. Discotheque is a rock song as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Drum, drums it got great. better over time, actually. It was better live than it ever was on that album. It was better on the 2002 Best Of. Too, yes. In my, yes. Uh, yeah. Which yeah. We, we need to talk about because you two went through a critical savaging after that and because of the tour which was seen as self-indulgent it was very out of touch with the late 90s as i remember it was very seen as self-indulgent even though u2 has always been about parodying and uh uh irony and all that stuff it was it was too much and, and getting stuck in the lemon like two or three times really was kind of like the fodder for people to, to kind of like this is this is you two being becoming what they parodying basically but then they in the 2002 best of they remixed every and re-recorded every single song from pop on that thing and that tells you exactly what they themselves thought of that album right well, Morty, I think that that shows, although like what I was saying about how it was very dated, I really felt of the spring of 1997. Yeah. Um, and and so, you know, giving it a look years later and, and uh, sort of, you know, reproducing re it um, kind of tells you all you need to know about that. Mm -hmm. But, the, you know, that was the one of the first, that was the first major concert that I ever saw. And no doubt it was like indulgent and bombastic in certain ways. Um, however, it's what has, it, it, like, they had the biggest screw, like television screen or video screen um, ever, yeah. you know, for that concert. And yeah. they, yes, they had the lemon and they got stuck in the lemon and, but you know, that all kinds of things. And their subsequent tours, they had plenty of like, super extravagant things as well, or even going back to Zoo TV, but yeah. it changed the concert experience. Anyone who's going and seeing these big concerts now of any contemporary pop star um, in arenas or in stadiums, um, you know, you too was like, why the hell can't we do that? Let's do it. You know? Exactly. I, I think you can definitely say they they did a lot to push to make the live experience for bigger crowds yeah. better than it's ever been. And they toured for years on end all over mm -hmm. the world. Like, I mean, Matt Magnesium and I uh, were able to catch them in Boston, um, you know, eight, 10, 12 months apart because they would start the tour there. They would go do the whole country and they would come back there and they do three, four nights each time. And then they go to Europe and then they come back. So as you two does, uh, doesn't get enough credit from people that have never seen them live. Well, and, and it's yeah, interesting. It's not just I like that with tour. A free ticket. I personally like that tour. I like every uh, all of the recordings I've heard from it, other than Bono's voice, which was really rough at that point, and it's probably the roughest I've heard Bono uh, ever was on the Zoo TV's tour. Uh, the, the Mexico Zoo City, TV. I'm sorry, or the Pop Mart Pop Mart uh, tour, and uh, Zoo TV. His voice was great, um, yeah. but they also did some great tra they did some great ver staring at the sun with edge uh acoustically i think was that the mexico city uh dvd he did that it was great yeah i thought that was fantastic i mean there was a lot of things they did in that tour that i thought was was like buried in the aesthetic of the experience i guess is the best the best way to put it right so if you listen to an audio bootleg or something like that of it you'd think oh this is really great you know, and I think that kind of got lost in the, the, the tinsel of what was going I think, on. I, I, think I think that they 
Go ahead, man. They, Sorry. they, they didn't. Uh, they, they tried to do the same thing in the Zoo TV tour, and it didn't get lost. I remember they did a set where they came out into the middle of the crowd in a little tiny stage. Yeah. And Larry had an acoustic drum, and Edge was on an acoustic guitar. And they did a four or five song set acoustic in the middle of the Zoo TV thing where they turned off all the lights and all the yeah. screens. Yeah. And I just came. And there was a great little set. And I don't know why they pulled it off then, but they couldn't do it in Pop Mart. But the, they were able to make those songs really breathe and shine in spite of the Zoo TV trappings. And they didn't quite pull it off in Pop Mart, I agree. So, uh, I, the thing about their, sorry, uh, their two, their performances, I mean, it's like, if you like a super indulgent U2, um, I don't know if there's anyone that does, um, but they, well, they you know, I mean, Zuropa was, I mean, the Zoo TV tour rather, you know, it predated Zuropa. It's, it was the Octung Baby tour and it was so over the top that they had to make Zuropa in order to become like financially solvent in that yeah. tour. Um, I mean, they were going all over the world. They were taking these old, you know, hollowed out Volkswagen bugs or beetles and putting lights in them and suspending them from the stage. And they were calling astronauts and they were ordering pizza for the crowd and they yeah. were making fun of uh, uh, George Bush and all kinds of things. And then Pop Mart like took that to the next level. But then mm -hmm. when they started their early 2000 tours and, you know, having to spend all the time with bomb and all that you can't leave behind. I mean, they started to like scale it back. I mean, one of those tours, it was just like four regular sized screens behind the band that just kind of showcased them. And elevation a, tour a, was like that elevation. Exactly. And they had the, you know, the, uh, the stage that was out in the audience where they'd play and some of their best songs, I think were like, you know, you take staring at the sun from pop and yeah. you listen to that acoustic version with just Bono and the edge. Um, and that improves that song by a hundred percent. I I'll say this and uh, Magnus, I want you, I want your thoughts on this because you are, you've been a fan longer than Pat and I have. I, I really got into you two at Joshua tree, um, but I kind of drifted out after Rattle and Hum, and then I came back. Um, from your perspective, I've always felt that uh, you two needed to be absolutely humiliated in order to change direction. And it, it really took what happened with Pop to, I mean, for what we can say about All That You Can't Leave Behind, which is, I think, a terrible title for an album. Um, that's the period where they started overlong album titles. Um, they- You can abbreviate. Yes, yes, you, you, uh, you could, you could see that it took that moment of just their critical panning and financial panning that they had to make them say, okay, we got to do something else because all that you can't leave behind is I think their third most biggest selling album. And a lot of that is due to nine 11, obviously, but it's, uh, and it it's, being awesome. it's just yeah, this yeah. massive thing. And I think maybe that was uh, what they needed to kick them into something else, regardless of what, and I think you and I, you, you uh, Magnus and, and Pat, the three of us agree that maybe uh, all that you can't leave behind isn't that great, but it took them to get to there to, to, to kind of move them into the next century, basically. Well, I'm going to quibble a little bit because I think that as the follow-up to pop, all that you can't leave behind was like exactly what I was looking for. And especially when you consider it's like relevance in no. like popular music, 
it was the, I mean, they, uh, I believe they won numerous Grammy awards they for did. that album. Um, it was in two years. It was like the first year they got it for like record of the year for like um, beautiful day, I believe. And mm-hmm. then the following year they won like album of the year and all this. So they were like, at the peak they were performing at the super bowl halftime show yep. everybody was taking them seriously and thinking of them as like a one of the biggest rock bands in the world which they were very much thought of back you know in the late 80s time magazine cover and such and and in the early 90s but then there was that lull and pop didn't you know was sort of disappointing i guess to like the mainstream music consumer and some of us big fans as well uh, <laughs> and so all that you can't leave behind i think was like the, the throwback to like, oh, this is kind of like when Joshua Tree came out and this album's awesome and I'm happy yeah. to tell my friends about it. They wanted to be a rock band again. And I think it shows both in the stripped down staging, uh, but also the set list. You know, for the first time in a long time, they were playing songs from Boy and October mm-hmm. and deep tracks from yes. War. I mean, they were playing Electric Co. and, you know, I Will yeah. Follow. And those are great rockers, you know, and, and they brought them back. And it was really cool to hear them play those early songs as a mature band. And they just melted. I mean, they were amazing live. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it was really good to see them cut loose. Uh, you can really see it on that Elevation tour. And Pat and I were at that show that was taped uh, for the DVD. The no, for, you guys were at the I didn't know that you guys were at we the were Boston show. We were at the Boston show, show yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, I was at, uh, they played the Garden. Nights. Awesome I, Garden. I was at four of them. At the garden, I, yeah. I, uh, and Morty, uh, you know, uh, crossover appeal. I believe they ended up going live during halftime of one of the NBA Finals games yeah, at uh, one of those Boston shows on mm-hmm. uh, the Elevation tour. I mean, they were the biggest rock band in the world once again, um, and they had deserved it. And you know, uh, we said uh, Magnus there is a genius, and the most intelligent thing he said today was how they were a rock band on you know they decided they want to be a rock band again and they were and by the the way i've said a lot more genius things than that just not recorded (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure your attorneys appreciate Um, (laughs) but i find that album to be uh, a welcome stepping stone away from what they started to do on zuropa which maybe is a little sacrilege to you guys uh but then what they definitely did on pop and it was kind of like bringing it back to what i really loved i I, I'll say this. Didn't Bono say at the beginning, right before, uh, or at least right after, all that you can't leave behind came out? We're 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 playing for the for the uh, uh, best rock band in the world, and it was just like, oh, it's such so a Bono tedious. thing to say. So tedious. But, but it was like, at the same time, in the '90s, YouTube was the biggest, probably the biggest rock band in the world, weren't they? Well, he's a, until pop. Yes, yes. They were, they were that three times. You got to hand it to, to them. They, mm-hmm. they were the biggest rock band in the world in 1987. They were the biggest rock band in the world in 1993. And again, in 2000 and 2001. Yep. Three different decades. They were the top fat rock band on earth. That's an amazing accomplishment. And I'm all for any discussion about the blowhardy nature of Bono. But uh, if you consider the context, I mean, this is just some regular schmo from uh you know ireland grew up you know super average middle class and tough time to be an irish guy and he became you know the 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 driving force in what magnus just described a band that three different times claimed the mantle of the biggest rock band in the world unbelievable and you know and he, they're, he put they're iconic in, in some interview in the zoo era he said you know when you're 16 you think you can take on the world and sometimes you're right 
because I mean that's his experience, right? That's it takes true. a tremendous amount of hubris to say that and to believe it. And if he wasn't like that, that band would not be. They, we, we wouldn't have seen them in Boston performing a show like that, or the, one of the greatest shows we ever saw was on Halloween in Providence, um, and it was Larry Mullen Jr.'s birthday, so he picked the whole set list, and it was three weeks after nine eleven, and it was amazing. Yeah, a small little arena in Providence, the Dunkin' Donuts Center. That was great. That was great. I okay. Uh, you know, we're talking about like how we each got into this band, actually, because I I, I wanted to kind of uh, bring into my experiences because I was a fan. Um, let's play. Let's face it. This let's put it to you this way: in 1987 and 88, you couldn't get away from you two. I still, you still, I. I still haven't found what I'm looking for and where the streets have no name were everywhere. You couldn't go into a freaking store uh, or you couldn't like turn on the television without hearing those songs. That's one of the reasons that became their biggest selling album. It was monstrous. And my mom, to the goodness of her heart, bought me the tape back in when tapes were a thing of, uh, of uh, the Joshua Tree. And I loved it. And then I loved Rattle and Hum, uh, as we pointed out before, even, even with Silver and Gold on it. Um, and that was my experience. And then I kind of drifted away at Oxfam Baby, even though I liked some of the songs. Uh, I didn't like Mysterious Ways. And U2 has a habit of, of having first singles that I don't like, like that and Discotech. I just, I did not like either of those songs. And I thought the Discotech video was just a cheesy mess. But they were obviously going for a thing. Now you two, uh, I'm going to talk about Magnus here because he he he's a, a older than you and I, uh, Pat. So, uh, Magnus, what was much, your much more well, yeah, five five years? Magnus, what is your experience with get, getting into you two? Well, my the first tape I ever bought with my own money was October. Oh God! Uh, I bought it with some birthday money. I must have been nine or ten. And then, I was recently born. Yeah, and then a few years later, I was deflowered to the dulcet tones of the unforgettable fire. So bad. <laughs> That's so, bad. That's bad. <laughs> so you might you might say I have uh, some uh, pretty intense personal connections with some of that early U two, and then and then uh, I wasn't a huge fan of Joshua Tree when it came out, although it was huge, and I think I was reacting to that. I had friends who were really into that album and. I just preferred Unforgettable Fire. Later, I came to appreciate Joshua Tree or whatever, but I just I just reacted to it being on the on the air all the time. So um, like me with uh, Octung Baby, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then something really interesting happened. I remember a couple years went by, and I was watching MTV in the middle of the night. It was it was like three in the morning, and this video came on, and it was crumbling buildings and what looked like Eastern Europe, and this guy with slick black hair was crawling over this rubble and on ledges and he had these amazing sunglasses and black leather on and it sounded like something I'd never heard before. It was it was goth but industrial but rock. It was so exciting. I was like, who the fuck is this? And then I saw The Edge and I was like, no fucking way. That is you too. Because the last song I had heard from them was Angel of Harlem. And then I saw it was The Fly. And they released The Fly and the video for The Fly before the album was out. And I couldn't believe 
the transformation. And I think that's uh, maybe for people who came to you two later, it's hard to appreciate how shocking and how successful that transformation was. Yes. Because you talk about taking a risk. I, you know, when Bono says that with Octung Baby, they took an axe to the Joshua Tree, that, that's a pretty apt description of what 100% accurate, yep. And now when you hear The Fly, it sounds like a U2 song. It didn't sound like U2 at the time. I, I was so impressed. And then when Octung Baby came out, we got the album and we listened to it, and it was a hard listen. It was, you know, we couldn't figure it out right away. And it took a lot of listens, but it was so intense and interesting. It just drew you in. And that, that was, I just, I, it was such an amazing musical experience to watch four guys grow like that and take yeah. that kind of a risk. And, and they were, it wasn't just the music style. They were writing about themes that they had never written about before, you know, murder and betrayal and, lust i mean those were very unused to lyrical topics at the time and it was amazing you know and, and then i saw zoo tv was the first youtube concert i ever saw and uh that was just an amazing live show so um I, yeah i was just so stunned at how successful and then here's what i thought when i heard off baby i loved it because it was all gothy and and baroque but I thought, this is never going to catch on. I mean, this is going to kill their career. It's, it's an amazing album, but there's no way. And then One is the biggest song they ever had. And Mysterious yep. Ways is the biggest song they ever had. And you know, I mean, they just, it was a, a number one hit generator. So, I, you know, I don't really know of any other example where an, a previously successful artist took such a big risk to such great reward, both artistic and financial. And they almost broke yeah. up during the making of it. So... Yeah. Uh, I mean, the only thing that would have made it better is if one of them had died, you know, like, you know, overdosing. (laughs) This is what what we come to Magnus for. (laughs) Overdosing (laughs) on the Zoo TV tour because they went a little too far down that dark road. Then, Oh, my God, Adam Clayton's gone. They've replaced him with John Paul Jones. (laughs) Famously, Adam Clayton did have a little too much partying in Australia and miss mm-hmm. a show. The only guy to ever miss a show because uh, he mm-hmm. party too hard. Um, and that is, you know, a, a great synopsis. And I'm glad you went first, Magnus, because, you know, we were just speaking, you know, offline here about how I came to you two a little bit later. I'm a little bit younger than you and you and both of you. Um, and uh, so in 1995 or so, I was 15. And uh, I had been introduced by a mutual friend of ours to Rattle and Hum. And uh, we'd been on a road trip and we were listening to this album and Desire just like kicked me in the oh, that song. ass and made me just, Great song. this is a rock and roll band. Who is this? Mm-hmm. And so I, uh, I listened to that and I, and I really dove into that album, which is like we earlier talked about kind of a weird U2 album. It's yeah. not all U2. I mean, they, got, they just like replayed Jimi Hendrix doing the national anthem. Um, but uh, <laughs> Desire really put, pushed me forward. And then I went back and looked at the band um, in that direction. And I also read the great book At the End of the World by Bill Flanagan, who yeah. is, um, no one knows Bill Flanagan, but he's a musical icon. If you look at what he's done, yeah. uh, he started like Unplugged on MTV mm-hmm. and uh, Storytellers. It's a great book. And, you know, just, and great that writer. book is just so magical and he's a great writer rolling stone i believe he wrote for for years and uh, that book at the end of the world 
just like told all those stories of those things that you described Magnus experiencing as a listener. And uh, so it was behind the, it was a great behind the scenes, um, behind the scenes information about the band. And I ate it up as a youngster getting into rock and roll and um, Octung Baby. I love that album. I put it in the, you know, the hall of fame of U2 albums. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's hard to, or the Mount Rushmore, it's hard to say what's the best one, but it's right up there. Of rock and roll albums. Yes. One of the best. Uh, Josh, they have, they have two. I mean, not many bands have two, but they have yeah. Josh, they Joshua Tree and Octung Baby. That is, and and, and and an almost one with War. Okay, to me, with War is like right there. Unforgettable Fire is a transition album to me, but we'll get into that later. To in, in, I transitioned in into manhood to that album. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> oh dear God. <laughs> I mean, the arc is. I mean, I think that a lot of this really speaks to the idea that like. For a certain generation, Generation X, you um, two, whenever you tuned into them, or if you ever tuned into them, they had relevant music for that time. When War yeah. came out, I mean, this is before my time, but like looking back on it, like that is an iconic album. They have mm-hmm. songs on that album they still play today. Mm-hmm. You know? Take yeah. a second to say goodbye. <laughs> Unfortunately, they play the two worst songs on the album. Those were the most, those were the hits though, you know, on that album. How dare you, by the way. <laughs> I mean, that's such an interesting, interesting album. I, it's never ceased to amaze me that in an album that contains, well, they play 40 a lot. They've always. 40, yeah. And uh, Seconds I always like. That's one of my. Seconds are great. Song. I know, you yeah, just sang some of them. Can we get a couple more verses? Oh, oh, oh. Lightning <laughs> flashes uh, across the sky, east to west. And, and you know, two two hearts beat as one. Also, just for the record, <laughs> oh, yeah. was on that album, which uh, not doesn't fit into the same sound as uh, Sunday Bloody Sunday and Seconds and Forty. But but let's not forget it was the it was, was the live at Red Rocks the, under from the, the Blood Sky yep. that really propelled them. You know that I think was that their was big, that was a coming out moment, right? That was their that was their big thing, and. It's interesting, uh, Barry Fay, who I had the pleasure to meet a couple of years ago, shortly before he killed himself. Died. Oh, I was yeah. going to say died. But, yeah. All right. <laughs> no, yeah, the guy, the guy axed himself. And I, he was doing a book signing, and he talks extensively about U2. Um, and he said that he brought them up to um, Red Rocks in the October tour, I think. It was, I think that was their first American tour. It was October, right? Um, Known as a fantasy boy. And uh, no. And uh, he said, You'll be playing this place one day. And imagine if you are a young band from Ireland seeing Red Rocks for the first time, being like, Holy shit. This, this place, mm-hmm. I'll be playing. This guy says, I will be playing here at this place. I'm sure that had an enormous impact on the way they thought, uh, especially getting into war, especially coming out of, you know, being in a cult for a while. So, Well, consider, too, you 2 played Red Rocks, and it was already iconic. The Beatles had played Red Rocks. Red Rocks, I always say, the best place to ever see a show because the artist is excited as is as excited to be there as you are. 100%. And uh, 
U2, just as another example of that, they played live under a blood red sky in the pouring rain and red rocks. And uh, that became an iconic concert. And now all these musicians to this day, they get to play there are aware of that and like have reverence for that. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's a beautiful I, thing. I had friends who had been at that concert and or had siblings who were at that concert. It was definitely talked about. Um, and uh, Interestingly, uh, trivia on that, you know, it's a uh, Red Rocks is a is owned or operated or whatever uh, managed by the city of Denver, Denver, and and they have the footage of that. They own the footage to wow. that concert that you two did uh, and became their live album. Well, that's interesting that. because I would like to see the full. They didn't play. They didn't show the full gig. Well, let's in, go down to the library, Morty. I'll meet on, you down there. And on the live album, they have what. What's the only song that they have from Red Rocks on the on the CD of Live yeah. Under Red Rocks? What is it like? Uh, Party Girl, I think. Uh, it was the only one that's. that's I believe, and there. I believe some of them are from McNichols. Also, they played at McNichols Arena show. Yeah, the next night uh, here in Denver. Yeah, and that was the some compromise. of the live recordings are there are mm-hmm. uh, are from that show. Yeah, I, I think here we we have to talk more about the dynamic duo, Brian Eno and and Danny Lenoir. Yes, they. Yeah, they come in along uh, with uh, Unforgettable Fire, and that was a big transition in U2's career because I happened to like their albums with Steve Lillywhite because uh, he brought out the rock in them, but Agreed. they needed to progress with Danny Lanois and, uh, and Brian Eno. And uh, Unforgettable Fire is very much a patchwork album, I feel. It's got some great – I mean, Bad is one of their best songs. Okay, that's, like, that's just, yes, one of their best songs. But uh, fourth, I'm not going to talk about it right now. But <laughs> we, uh, Matt, what is your thoughts on Dan, uh, Lanois and Eno? Because without them, I don't think they progress as far as they do. No, no, they wouldn't. They wouldn't have. They would have been a mid-level, semi-successful rock band. And what's interesting about them is you need both. You know, Daniel Lanois make sure that they have songs that they can play live. And I think Bono has even talked about this. Yeah. You know, Brian Eno, he, all the parts that are singable and uh, you would hum to, Brian wants to take out. Daniel Lanois wants to bring the drums out and wants to isolate melodies and bring those up. And, and Daniel Lanois makes sure they're up in key so they can be played live. Yeah. So it's that interesting tension. You know, the, uh, Brian Eno had a great comment about the making of the Joshua Tree. He said that the six of them were all making a different album they were all push all six of them were pushing as hard as they can in a very separate direction which made this very stretched and diffuse and mysterious thing called an album which is amazing to think of and i i don't think and i think the quality of their work shows you know the the non-brain you know non-daniel lenoir material is good it's never great you know, I, War is good. Maybe you could say War, they came closest. But I wonder if without Brian and Danny, if War would have been their peak. You know, it's hard to see them producing a Joshua Tree without those two guys. Well, let me, let me just throw this out there. We're gonna, I'm going to bring this back up to the, uh, the all that you can't leave behind. They bring back Lanois and Eno. That was one of the big, the, the, the big steps is that they, they retreated, but they didn't treat, retreat back to Lily White. They brought you know, Lanois Nino in, and mm-hmm. it is a not a rock album. It's a, it's very much a pop album with a couple rock songs on it, 
a beautiful a beautiful day is one of the their masterpiece songs not one of my favorites but i can consider it one of their masterpieces it's one of those songs that adore forever and i think that that album is largely propelled by that one song um and then the rest of it kind of trickles down from there and then the second half of the album is garbage but okay. <laughs> matt's smiling he knows <laughs> but we but they they go for that's not garbage i like uh i like uh uh um in a little while i like that song um but it, it goes from there and he, but you do feel and matt actually and i, I or magnus has got a a big uh <laughs> I keep going by the first two letters of His Magnus. His name is Magnus. Magnus, Magnus keeps going. I, I has made this point to me repeatedly. They need producers like Daniel Lanois and uh, Brian Eno, and to a lesser extent, Steve Lillywhite, to craft the songs for them. Flood worked on Joshua Tree, and Flood yeah. worked on Hot um, Tongue. Yeah. What, true. What did Howie B work on? Artists. Except Led Zeppelin. Exactly. Jimmy Page produced all. But, I, but no, I agree. Most bands... Well, but Jimmy Page was also a producer. Like, Jimmy Page yeah, exactly. should be given credit for his uh, brilliance as a producer as well as a guitar player and, uh, and all of his other musical um, contributions. But can give credit to the people that bring in the outside sources to yeah. continue their growth as an artist. I mean, we, the fifth member of U2 was Paul McGinnis. You know, oh, he yeah. was the manager of U2 up until, you know, semi-recently. Yeah. And uh, he had an equal share of everything because he helped usher that band along the way. I mean, there are so many instances where they almost were dissolved mm-hmm. and they never did. They're still making, making music today. No matter what you think I mean, isn't it, that interesting? You need all these components. You need a manager who <laughs> believes in you. You need producers who push you. You need a record company that understands you need to grow and there's going to be some misfires. That's the artistry. Like artists yeah. need all those things to keep yes. them in the box so they can both be commercially successful and artistically engaged and the, the, you get the best out of them. And I think that's what makes the band great is that, and any, any like you said, other than Jimmy, you know, up on Jimmy Page, you know, look at any of the great bands they worked with collaborators that helped to make sure that their voice was heard in the best way possible there's you know it's great you know it's a great example of this yeah everyone knows i still haven't found what i'm looking for on that documentary uh making of the joshua tree daniel Anwar talks a lot about that song he says that he encouraged the band to take it to the gospel place emotionally yeah, yeah. the original version of it didn't sound anything like that he, he encouraged them to move in that direction. And then he pushed Bono to sing at the top of his range. And that was before Bono came upon his falsetto that he was very good at in the Octane Baby era. Yes. But so at the time, he was singing at the very, he was pushing himself in a physical way yeah. to hit those notes. And you can and really it, tell, you know, and, and it's so amazing that he pushed them to do it and to do something they, they wouldn't have done if they were just on their own devices. And if we could go see them play a live show tomorrow, they would play that song and they would be exhibiting that contribution. That's what, yeah. that's why they're an enduring band, you know, yes. and that's maybe why, and we haven't got to this, but that's maybe why their current stuff doesn't hit the same notes. Um, yes. I, I, because I, they were changing the, the rules of the game and they were working with people 
that uh, helped on that path. And those people, um, you know, are, are in the liner notes, but they're not on stage, uh, but they are um, immeasurable in their contribution. You know, I was, I, was, I was thinking about this. There is a line of demarcation about where Bono became the guy who has a bunch of other interests and the space between albums starts to grow. And that really becomes evident with between all that you can't leave behind and how to dismantle an atomic bomb, which is almost five years. Mm-hmm. And what, what you, what you notice is that they started with a different uh, producer. I think it was a Chris Thomas. They started on the, that album with, and then they didn't like him. And then they brought it back in Steve Lillywhite. Atomic bomb is the, we want to be war again album. It's, it's, it's just my view. There's like miracle drug sounds to me like it come, could have come off of war to me. Oh uh, boy. Yeah. Particularly with the piano and the, it's just, it sounds like that era. Um, uh, I, I think it would sound pretty in place on an unforgettable fire as well with a yeah. few instrumental yeah. arrangements. Do you guys look at atomic bomb and, and, and Matt, I know you probably have a, a different view of atomic bomb than I do. I enjoyed, again, half of it. I didn't think the lows were quite as low as what the second half of All That You Can't Believe Behind were. Uh, upon upon re-listening after, you know, 16 years. Uh, uh, you know, I enjoyed Atomic Bomb. I, I really like Vertigo. It's a, it's a great rock and single. Another great I saw, opener. I yeah. saw that tour a couple of times. Weird on the album. Garden. Yeah, but... You know, that for me, the corporateness started to sink in. That was the time when they had the YouTube branded iPod. iPods, yep. And the, the video for Vertigo was was an actual iPod commercial. That really troubled me. I didn't did not think that was a good sign. Um, and I think I was prophetic in, in that worry. Having said that, I do think it drops off the second half of the album isn't nearly as strong as the first. Um I didn't understand at the time why it took so long to make a mediocre to good album. Yeah. You know, I felt like that was an album they should have been able to knock out in 18 months, you know? Um, but you know, it is what it is. The, the, the show of that album was pretty hit and miss too. It was very political. It was the more vertigo, political. The Vertigo tour, yeah. right? Yeah. It was more political than any of the shows I'd seen them do before. Um, so, but you know, I love Vertigo. I love the song. Well, yeah, I mean, I I love that album. I think that's a great album. I and mean, there are weak spots on every single U two album. And there's two or three songs that I, if I never listen to again, that'd be fine. Yeah. But you know, Crumbs for Your Table and City of Blinding Light and All Because of You and all these songs were original music of the to my freaking ears. Yeah. The original of the species. I love that song. And I saw yeah. again. I saw this band so many times live during this era. And but, I but, love those but songs. I think and, you just named all the good songs in that album. All of them are good, <laughs> but there's four or five. Well, I'm accept. I accept that. Like, yeah, uh, you yeah. know, I mean, so maybe I'm not disagreeing with you that like half the album isn't like entirely memorable. But you know, it's really hard to put your tenth studio album out and have ten great songs on it, um, especially because they're so 
aware of the current sound and or the current way in which they're trying to like engage with their musical talent and i think you see that throughout there you know with like songs like yahweh and such which they played live numerous times and i think that's what you're talking about when they got more political um and things um and i can understand like a, a pushback on that but you know they were political from their inception and that was part of their deal they were uh, you know i mean it's like more that maybe our acceptance of musical artists speaking about political things was waning at that time or yours well, no um, I, I i look i mean i'm just going with what you're saying pat i don't it's less about the, polit the, the, the politics than it is about Bono being consistently distracted. And, and then that, I guess, is what, where I kind of bring back to where YouTube kind of like, YouTube kind of like goes from, a di goes from we have a comeback with all that you can't leave behind. And then Matt is right. The commercialism on uh, Atomic Bomb was just rampant. For back-to-back -back albums, Morty. Like, yeah. I mean, it's you. T you take Octung Baby and you take Zeropa, and yeah. it's night and day. You yeah. know, and you want to take you. You know, it for back-to-back -back albums. It seemed like though that all that you can't leave behind and how to dismantle an atomic bomb were sort of congruent. And I think that we've talked about before, but it's worth mentioning that maybe you could pull from that an amazing ten or twelve-track album from yeah. those two. You know, type of thing. No, oh, yeah. Um, but I, uh, you know, I understand that, like, you know, but also politics was changing at that time, too. And, you know, we saw them, Magnus, right after 9-11. And there was, you know, the show ended with a hologram of, like, all the names of victims of the 9-11, you know, attacks uh, in, in the arena. And from that point on, I mean, you know, Bono took off his leather jacket and turned it inside out. And it was an American flag, you know. I mean, that was, like, what was going on then. Did that mm -hmm. Super Bowl too? Yeah. yeah. I I kind of think that Atomic Bomb is begins the line of demarcation with you two because uh, I actually enjoy Atomic Bomb, but I think that Matt is completely right in a sense that the just the rampant commercialism is there. I do think that it's more consistent in my view, than, atomic, than all that you can't leave behind, particularly the back end of all that you can't leave behind. But we get to No Line in the Horizon, and that is where it gets really controversial. And okay. I, That's fair. Yeah, and that and, and I, I'm going to be the contrarian here. Yeah. Um, because I think I enjoyed that more than either of you did. Yeah. Um, maybe. But I do want to also point out that contemporaneously in the time when these albums were released, How to Dismantle and Tonk Bomb and um, All That You Can't Leave Behind, that Magnus, you hated them both when they came out. And you were like, this is a disaster. This is an outrage. First and they of all, grew I on you know, over time. No, no. You, uh, these are you, facts. You hated, these you are, hated uh, All That You Can't Leave you. Behind. I Morty, remember that. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Right. Let's remember. Thank I, you, Morty. I read, okay. Let me, let me, we're sitting at Gladstones and you go. <laughs> the late, great crap. Gladstones. Morty. <laughs> I don't like this album. I don't know what the fuck they're doing. A Beautiful Day is a good song, but that's it. First of all, that's a great impression. Um, that's a winner. You're doing all my deep fakes, Morty. So what are you saying? It's in my nature to be, to be disappointed with anything. I think you like it in hindsight, like kind of like me with pop. I think you like You hold no hindsight. higher standard for anything in your life as you do for U2 albums. The, it and be sometimes... Fair to me, though. 
when I was living I, in I'm Ireland, interested in that. When I was living in Ireland, I had the uh, elevation tour on my laptop. I watched it a million times because I didn't have a TV over there. You I had that nine track holding MPG player, MP3 which was filled with ATY BHQ. Yes, yeah, exactly. So. If, if that was my initial reaction, I, I grew to love it quickly and yeah. consumed it voraciously. Yeah. Um, I did enjoy the Elevation Tour. Maybe that made I you like it more. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Live music sure. Makes, should make you like everything more. Definitely. Anything you hear. They were still a great live band then. The, uh, I dare you to great today. What, what I remember on No Line on the Horizon, they started that – uh, promotional tour with they had, did like a residency on the Letterman show where they were like did a, sh- a song Five Nights yeah and YouTube it it's available and I was really impressed with those performances and then the album came out and it was challenging and I dug into it I listened to it over and over again I went at first I hated it and then I loved it then I wasn't sure what do you guys think about that album in hindsight it has gems I mean I think this was the start well I mean first of all I I agree with Morty, that uh, Mortanamo Bay, um, that it is without question a bridge album between where like I will defend all that you can't leave behind and how to dismantle atomic bomb and pop and Octung and Drupa and whatever as like you know they were out in front of everyone, but that particular album I feel like started the the, the path towards there's a few memorable memorable tracks and nothing else matters you know Magnificent is a great song. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'll go crazy if I don't go crazy. If I don't go crazy tonight, is a song that I really like. Mm-hmm. However, I, like, I like "Get On Your Boots" was the bumper song on goddamn Tim McCarver and Joe Buck of the World Series, and it was unlistenable at times. You know, it was and terrible. at times, what kind of it was, song was that? It was unlistenable from the start. I heard that. I'll song take that, and- Morty. I'll take it. I'll accept that. <laughs> I, I listened to that I- song when I first heard, it, and I'm like, "This is when they died to me." I was like, that is the worst it's song. A top, the, it's a bottom I, 10 song on that album. And there's yeah. like 11 tracks. Uh, you know, I, I think we got to bring in here the, um, the method of composition too. I remember a review came out of Get On Your Boots and it said that it sounded like a garage band disaster. In other words, someone in their basement cobbling together bits from other songs to make yeah. a horrible new song. And I thought, well, that's a good way to describe that song because it sounded to me like the worst parts of Elevation and the worst parts of Vertigo crammed together yeah. with yeah. a horrible chorus. But then, do you remember that documentary, It Might Get Loud, with Jimmy yeah. Page, Edge, and Jack White? Yeah, A beautiful thing, yes. They show the Edge in his own home studio composing Get On Your Boots. And guess what he's, he's working in? Garage Band. Or something very similar. He, he was He's doing it man. by himself on yeah. his laptop. And I'm thinking, oh my God. <laughs> Did they get away from writing songs as a unit together? And well, is that part of the problem? It's definitely on the path, right? Like that's why we can look at their more recent albums and basically just dismiss them and not even give them the time of day because it was like their relevance to it, to music was no longer paramount. Um, either music had passed them by or they their experimentation to take them out 
of the realm of things that were interesting for people that like like them for a long time and that's why on that album i can pull three to five tracks that i really love yeah. and then we can listen to anytime and you, and you guys would love to and if they came up at a concert that we were all standing next to each other at god willing um then we would be like oh this is a great song and it's even better live or whatever but there's breathe, so many tracks breathe. on there that you breathe absolutely um magnificent but, you know, is I mean, a magnificent song i mean it really magnificent just, is a yeah. great u2 song yeah. but do you know about songs called stand-up comedy or yeah. fez being born like what do those songs sound like you don't remember because you listened to them one time and we're like pass theaters of lebanon did anyone ever hear those into that song a second time no absolutely no. you know and that's what the album closes out with their 11th track and it's just you know at that point what are you doing and, and that then became what ended up happening to this band is you yeah. know i could pull one or two songs off their later albums and be like these are great like you know melodic interesting songs to listen to but they're not pushing the envelope and maybe as guys that are like you know lucky enough to be advancing through various age groups that's what ends up happening is you're no longer a, a trailblazer and you're no longer a band that is like pushing the envelope and you're no longer a band that can even like capture the feelings that you had for your glory years um and that's maybe where this band has like uh ended up to um with their albums but i'll We'll go watch them live any any goddamn day. I mean, if well, they're like, if they if they're playing tomorrow, I'll the see. The 360 that. tour obviously was a big tour, huge tour for them. Um, I think that With was that, their most lucrative tour. I saw it twice. And yeah, one of them with and you, it, and it was interrupted uh, by Bono's uh, uh, Central Park bike accident. Yes, where they had to delay it by like a year. But they came back and they played a world tour after it. You know, so mm -hmm. uh, you know they're still a touring band. They were still. You know, I mean, there's people that love the Rolling Stones. They're older than us. I love the Rolling Stones, but people that like grew up with the Rolling Stones and they still see them play in arenas and in stadiums yeah. today or, you know, it's regular today. Not, well, not today. exactly. And, then, um, and but the, but would you say that you two became the Rolling Stones of our generation? I hope they live forever like they yeah. Stones seem to have, but they, they, maybe, they, but, but I'll go together, watch, you know the stones to play the songs that i love any any time i have the chance you know yeah. and i think that you know i've been to a u2 show in recent years you know in the last five or six years and uh yeah it's all older guys or older people older you know super white straight people love u2 from 1988 into 1998 or whatever or 2005 and uh that's who fills the stadiums but how many how many musical acts are filling stadiums around the world yeah. u2 tours for weeks and months and years and they yep. play everywhere and they play in stadiums and they sell it out you know and they and you know uh, again like back to like paul mcginnis and like the management and the other people involved like you know they have those iconic dvds the zoo tv was pay-per-view right matt mm -hmm. I mean, magnesium uh from uh from you know 1992 you could pay and 40 I, bucks. I taped it on hs from that pay-per-view broadcast Right. Which we wore the very VHS many times. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. You know, and, and but ele, you know, Vertigo, Elevation, Live from Boston, Live from Mexico City, Live from Slane Castle. If you are wanting to like introduce somebody else and say, like, do you want to enjoy you two like I do? Watch that line live from Slane Castle. Slane Castle's the um, best one I've seen. DVD. Yeah. When they talk about, oh, you know, we're just a small band from the north side of Lub Dublin, you know, and this is one of our first singles, and they, you know, they start um, playing out of control. 
Yeah. I mean, that's you too right there. That's you know, right I don't, there. I don't hear that in their latest albums and whatnot, but I don't hate them for it either. I don't dismiss them as like well, an important cultural relevant. I think they've, they've become a, they've become a legacy guy. They've become a legacy act and that's okay. But I, they I, did not want to be, you know, he did not want to be, but when you do. When they do an Octang Baby, as was saying to interviewers, I think we have another 10 years left in us. Another yeah, couple and, hours. And now what, Megan, yeah. what are they, in their 60s? Yeah. Mono you know, just I mean, keep 60. that in mind. 60s. Yeah. Like, when I was a kid, people who were in their 60s were old as shit and waiting to die. You know? Mm-hmm. And now they're, they're U2, and they're planning on launching a world tour as soon as they're allowed to. You know? You know and, and, I, and I don't want to go into the last two albums, because they, they do, they're just kind of oh, samey to me. Uh, I tried to listen. I tried to listen to both of them this afternoon in preparation for this discussion, and I couldn't get through two tracks. Yeah, me. I still like California. That's and that's the only one I like on Innocence. But I, it's just they're they're interchangeable songs, and uh, it's not U two. Uh, and maybe I'm to the point where I'm one of those people that say like U two ended for me. Basically, Every breaking with, wave song yeah. for someone. They're both yeah. legitimate U two songs. If they were yeah. on older albums, we'd like them. Breaking um, wave is good. Breaking wave is a good song. Yeah. Hang with us because there's eleven other tracks that we don't give a shit about. And yeah, but the, the cool shit we don't of, care about the quotient of bad songs increased. Increased to the point where um, it made the albums un, not unlistenable but forgettable. I guess. Well, let's not forget that yeah. the first Agreed. two albums were pretty weak too and had a lot of weak tracks. Yeah. The difference yes. is, I would say the first two albums and the last two albums are definitely the weakest albums. The difference is the first two albums had misfires and some experiments that didn't hit, but they were learning. They were literally yeah. learning how to play their instruments. They were learning how to write songs. You could see them growing, even though maybe that track wasn't good or whatever. The last two albums, they should have known better, you know. I don't know, Magnus. Like, I think that, like, it, like I described it earlier, it's an arc, you know? I mean, they started with those albums. They didn't know what the hell was going on. They were 17 years old, you know? And they had some songs that ended up being enduring and that we look at nostalgically. And then their latest albums, you know, they're in their 60s and they're trying to figure that stuff out, you know? And again, like, if you take two songs out of um, Innocence and Experience, you know, and you take uh, a song or two out of Songs of Experience, or, you know, these names are even like impossible to keep track of anymore then you know you can be like you're the best thing about me is a u2 song and if it was snuck in as a b-side when we were searching for those in 1998 or whatever we'd be like this song kicks ass you know yeah but pat that should have been um, a good mid-album rocker not yeah. the best song on the album yeah fair fair yeah. no you know? I, I i completely agree and uh we will get back to this in just a second right now Sure, the regular season is fun, but the only sure thing that you can compare to the excitement of the basketball playoffs is having skin in the game with DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app. Basketball has made its way through the regular season. Now is the time to to crown a champion uh, going into the NBA uh, this next season. And uh, basically, DraftKings is where it's at to get you uh, where you need to be with all these prop bets that's going on right now, uh, is including with my buddy uh, Pat there, which we will talk about in a second. Uh, to celebrate basketball's first round of the playoffs, DraftKings Sportsbook is uh, giving you an amazing free bet offer. For every day that you bet at least $20 on basketball, DraftKings Sportsbook will give you a, a $10 free bet. Uh, head uh, to the app right now and check out all they have to offer, including player props, 
quarter-by-quarter betting, and so much more. Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use the code MHS when you sign up. For a limited time, all users can get a $10 free bet when placing a bet of $20 or more on all future first-round playoff action. That's right. DraftKings Sportsbook is going all out by offering a $10 bet for free when placing a bet on a, on a $20, of $20 or more on all first-round playoff action. Again, that's promo code MHS, MyLifeSports, MHS, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. You must be 21 or older, Colorado only. Other terms and conditions and restrictions apply. See DraftKings Sports, uh, DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. You should not be reading that stuff while you've been drinking. Okay. Morty, uh, I'm, I want to sign up for that DraftKings, but do not be calling that gambling problem number on my behalf. All right. Gambling problem? Call 1-800. <laughs> um, so... Pat, we have been talking about, and Magnus, we've been talking about um, our basically our favorites of, of, of eras. I mean, we've kind of indicated what we've liked. We've kind of indicated what we don't like on these things. And um, while during the break, uh, Magnus kind of talked about what's our favorite on each album and what is our least favorite on each album. And I think that's a good way to kind of go through this thing because we, I did a top five and a top uh, least five, but I think uh, Magnus has a, had a better idea here. So Pat, we're going to start with you. What is uh, like, we're going to go with boy, obviously uh, from the start. What's your favorite and least favorite on that album? Wow. I mean, uh, going all the way back to boy, I mean, the favorite is I will follow everyone. I mean, that's, it's iconic live. It's mm-hmm. magical. It's beautiful. I mean, it's uh it's one of the best songs ever. Um, I w- would listen to it today. You know, I mean, that is an early U2. That's a song that I'll listen to every time. Mm-hmm. And if you have access to any of the uh, the live DVDs or whatever, however media you consume, uh, <laughs> I Will Follow is always just completely um, representative of that time. And it's great. Out of control is a classic U2 song. Um, as the slain castle live DVD out of control is the best song. As far as I'm concerned, there's nothing that you should need to listen to better. Um, you know, I mean, electrico is a great song. I've seen it perform live numerous times and whatever. I think that the, the, my least favorite songs are just songs that like were forgot to time, forgotten to time rather. Um, you know, I mean, stories for boys day without me, like these kinds of songs. It's like, if you go and you dig deep into you too, and you want to hear what they were like going into when they first started, those songs are interesting to listen to, but I never, select them when i'm like rando listening through you two songs but every damn time that uh you know um uh into the heart comes on or out of control comes on i am 100 percent on board um for me uh out of control is probably the best because live it was so good you know, not necessarily on the album, but live out of control was really good. And, and Pat is absolutely right. The Slain Castle one is really, really good. I suggest everyone watch uh, live at Slain Castle. It's just an epic experience. Um, least favorite, probably Shadows and Tall Trees, I guess. I mean, there's not a lot. I mean, the rest of the album is kind of like, this is very much a first album kind of thing. So it's hard for me to look at this and say this al- this is like complete garbage. But yeah, Shadows and Tall Trees is probably my least favorite on the album. 
consider it's a first album too. A first album is always going to be like the best eight to 10 tracks that a band has been working on for years and years and years and years. Mm -hmm. And so the things that they leave off of it are probably mediocre and the things they leave on them on it are probably better. And then once you start getting to that sophomore album and you start moving on, all of those songs are intentional for the album. So I think that kind of like speaks to, in my opinion, why boy is uh, more interesting than October. Yep. I, I gotta say electric co is the best song on the album i will follow is good you know that's classic but electric co especially later when they really learned how to play it just amazing rocker and that it's on the elevation tour oh no i'm sorry it was on the vertigo tour on mm-hmm. the dvd great version of electric co i like shadows and tall trees it's a little gothy uh, i like i like the hints of things to come there oh you like that one the, wor- the worst thing for me from this era weren't on the album those are the singles like party girl trash something and the trampoline girl or whatever i mean there's some really awful singles that came out of this era that didn't make it on the album thank god and also party girl ends up making appearances on many live shows uh, into the 90s and 2000s and mm-hmm. it's usually a snippet but it's uh and party it's a throwback girl is that the i think holds one... a place and Party Girl is the only one that makes it from Red Rocks up to the live under a blood red sky uh, yeah. tape slash uh, CD later, which is nonsensical. Bizarre, but, yeah. Yeah. All right, Pat, October. October's harder because I don't like it. Um, <laughs> it's, I mean, you know, you, you really get into like Gloria as the song from that that you can pull. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, for me, it doesn't stand out. And I never listen to October. I never like, hey, let's go check out October. It's October or whatever. Like there's no occasion that makes me be like, let's listen to this album. And I think that when they move on from there and do more um, live shows of things like that, that it's uh you know any of those tracks that they play are better on other on other versions than the album version but gloria is the only song that i think is salvageable out of there uh, maybe the song october um one of my favorite u type u2 songs period is i fall down i love that song i love the way bono sings it uh maybe that is to me the peak bono voice is on i fall down it is punky but it's still poppy i love that song it is uh the only song I really listened to on this album, because uh, I, as Pat was saying before, it's not a substantial album. You know, you, they, they joined a cult. It's a weird time. It's, it's not a convincing album by any stretch. Um, I, at least favorite, I can't really say, other than maybe I threw a brick through the window, which I used to love, but I kind of listened to it recently, and I'm like, this is not that great. Um, and either that or Gloria. I've never liked the Gloria. Never liked it. Uh, but I Fall Down is a spectacular song. And I think that's deserving of a reassessment by one Patrick Guerin. So there. I'll take that under advisement. Uh, dismissing Gloria is an outrage. <laughs> I'll just point out. <laughs> but yes, uh, I, I'm happy to circle back. I mean, interesting note on this album. A lot of people don't know that Bono lost. He had written lyrics for this album, and he lost them on a train, I believe, yep. like right before. Which they were happened started. more than once. Yeah, more there. than once. So they, you know, at least that's the excuse they had why this. He was literally writing, scribbling lyrics in the on the studio wall as they were recording it. Um, as I mentioned, this was the first record I ever bought with my own money as a kid. 
and I played uh, Scarlet over and over and over again. It's a simple song. It's a really nice rhythm from Larry Mullen. Simple guitar melody and just one word repeated over and over. It's sort of the template that would become the classic U2 album closers, like 40, you know, um, in that vein. That was mm -hmm. the template for it. And it's, yeah. it's a, I wish they had closed the album with it. I think it would have been a stronger album. It was a really nice lull to close the album. So yeah, I, I think I, deep cuts there is what, what we're saying, what you're saying is yeah. that, you know, you can pull some of those and they, are, they do continue to hold value to a YouTube fan. Absolutely. Definitely. And I like the song October. It's a nice, it's like a half song. It's like an idea of a song. Um, the worst song, just pick any other. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, what, 20, 21 when they made this album? So it's it, like, can it, not, yeah. keep that in mind. Really young. Yeah. It's definitely a sophomore slump, for sure. Yeah. And they were still just an Irish band. You know, they were just like these guys playing in Dublin and, you know, grinding things out and whatnot. They were not you too. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. They were not, definitely. Okay, Pat, War. Well, I mean, iconic song, Sunday Bloody Sunday, is oh. a YouTube anthem. Uh, oh. I know Magnus hates that song. Um, he hates wave that song. white flag, Matt. He, wave, he doesn't. Or, or Magnus, wave he, that white flag. A, <laughs> We've jumped the shark at this point, so it's... He objects to social justice, so that's just his style. But... Um, you know, I mean, as a live song, that is a U2 iconic song. Um, do I listen to it with any regularity? No, but uh, I never miss it live or with any, any DVD I revisit. Like, that is a U2 song. Yeah. Um, you know, and then uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, Morton Fairchild, uh, Seconds is <laughs> yeah. like a deep, it's almost like a deep cut. Like, I don't think about that song that often, but it's catchy and it's interesting. And, yeah. you know, it's the second track. <laughs> I believe on the song and and freaking New Year's Day if you wake up on January 1st every year and you don't listen to New Year's Day what in the hell are you doing as a U2 fan like that is if you are a DJ if it, I don't I don't know you guys can tell me if they still have DJs but if you're not playing that at midnight on New Year's Eve on your radio station then you are doing everything wrong that is a classic and then you know two hearts beat as one is uh it's a beautiful song it's like it's got soul. I love that song. And I think it carries um, itself with respect all the way to this day. And 40 was magical, you know, live. It's hard to pick like songs I don't like on that album because I think that was a really great album. I think that was an album that in their arc of success that they eventually were able to achieve was a very critical stepping point. And it's early eighties and it's not, what else was going on in the early 80s other than certain wonderful examples springsteen um but uh it was you know it was well written it was well produced and it was awesome live from you what know, i understand from research. looking at this album pat i i was listening to it like last week and i'm like you know what there's a lot more songs in here i appreciate much more than i did before because it's very much early u2 but it's their transition to becoming a more mature band. Seconds sure. is still probably my favorite on the album. Uh, it used to be 40, but 40 is better live. And that's why I kind of like, it has to be seconds um, for me specific, specifically. And I think that um, it's good to have, uh, other than Van Diemen's Land, it's good to have Edge have a, have a feature like that. And... Uh, sure. That's one of the reasons I love it. 
I really, I, I mean, it is a very much an edge song and uh, it's really, really good. And I don't have a least favorite on this album. There's all, it's a very even album. I don't have a, uh, anything I look at that, at this, like specifically on this album and think, I really hate that out that song. To me, it's very even. And the one that stands above the rest is for me is seconds. Yeah, I, I'll agree with you, Marty. I think this is their first proper album. Yeah, there's no bad songs. It's yeah. a, it's Let's a, keep it, in mind that Seconds is not played live, but Sunday Bloody Sunday is, and that's the iconic the hits, song from though. that album. Oh, that's the hit, and Seconds is a deep, deep cut. Air quotes. The, that means you know New Year's Day and Sunday Bloody Sunday are by far the worst songs on the album. But there's <laughs> no- sure. <laughs> I like to have a word with you offline. Uh, New Year's Day, forty is Freaking amazing. All is quiet on his New Year's Day. <laughs> Sob, I'm calling you on forty is great. Forty first, better live. Forty, you know the the classic way that YouTube played forty live was Edge would play the bass and Adam would play the guitar, and then they would uh, close out by one of them each in turn leaving the stage until it's only Larry. Uh, yeah, and, which is why you love it because and i get it it's a deep cut and it's only to be appreciated live and it wasn't played on at eleven fifty five on new year's eve on your local classic rock station but exactly. new year's day is an iconic u2 song you cannot dismiss that for 40. i could dismiss it you know what both of you you're out of here but it is a really good album it's really cohesive it's a it's a solid solid album and and i can see why they broke through with that it's their first best album. Yeah, I, I would say so. Yeah, and you're the, right. You're right. The energy that they exhibited, you know, Bono has said that when they played those songs live, and you can see it on Under Blood Red Sky, they they couldn't play the songs as well as they wanted, so they compensated by energy and, and they did. And those yeah. that energy carried them through songs. And it's really interesting to see them play these tracks, even Sunday Bloody Sunday later, like on the Elevation Tour, for example where they actually could play them properly and just kill it. But they got a lot of mileage out of being young and ambitious and, yeah. you know, swinging for the fences. So great production. For it. Uh, yeah. It, it's a great album. Mm-hmm. If you're too fanny to appreciate war, then. Uh, it's iconic, yeah. iconic uh, album cover too. Yep. I mean, oh, who, yeah. who doesn't think of that album cover when you think of you too? It, it's just well, that's what I mean by a proper. All, album. all old people do. That's what the I mean. artwork is is iconic and 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 fits the music perfectly. You know, the the title fits the music perfectly. It was just really well conceived and executed. Uh, well said, Mister Mister Garen, the uh, mm. unforgettable fire, the unforgettable yeah. Garen. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I always shoot for. Okay, great. I mean, of course. Pride in the Name of Love is an iconic U2 song, and it is magical on that record. But, you know, The Unforgettable Fire itself, um, and <laughs> Bad steals the show. Sorry, Magnus, I know you're going to take tea off with that. But Bad is uh, a top-tier Hall of Fame U2 song, and their Unforgettable Fire version of that is beyond reproach i don't think you can pick anything else um you know they get into their their world of mlk and their talk about elvis presley in america and whatnot and and those songs are interesting uh taken in the context of their time but you know if you host a radio show tonight with classic rock you're not playing that but you you know 
you break out Unforgettable Fire or Pride in the Name of Love or a sort of homecoming, then, you know, you're, you're hitting some nerves with classic, you know, American or classic international uh, rock and roll. You know, I'm just going to say Bad's my favorite song on the album. I, anyone, if you listen to the previous hour on this podcast, you know that Bad's my favorite <clears throat> song on the album. Um, so the best uh, songs ever. It's, it's, it's an amazing song. Bono's maybe uh, Bono's, the peak of Bono's vocals. Uh, I'm, the I'm wide awake part is emotional. Uh, it, he's stretching his voice. He's screaming, but it's perfect. It's perfect for the song. It's just everything like comes together in harmony on that. I agree. As opposed to 4th of July, which is awful. You don't like that song, I gather. Awful song. I hate that song. Hate it. It's not uh. as bad as some, let's get on your boots. But it is, <laughs> a, it is a awful song. And I'm like, why is it on here? I was listening to this album yesterday. And I'm like, I sent you guys a text. And I'm like, this is you terrible. Did. This is, I hate this song. Maybe it was the day before yesterday. I hate this no, song. I, I had to go listen to it again. And it is not a great song. But again, it's a band with 500 songs. You know? it's, yeah. it's true. They, you, you're going to find one. 400 of them are terrible. So, uh, well, so Magnus? Yeah, first of all, Bad is my favorite U2 song. Mm -hmm. It's one of my favorite songs of all time. It, uh, it's the first great song yeah. it you know what's it's interesting about <clears throat> that is it shouldn't work it has no chorus it has no bridge it's kind of like with or without you in that way it's it's so different it shouldn't work and it does yeah and that's i think that's the first time you really see that magic where those four guys no no one else could have produced that you know and lyrically, I think it's among Bono's best. Mm -hmm. It's just magic. But Pride of the Name of Love, you know, for all, it's a classic and I have a top 40 hit and all that. And yet also very odd structure, very yeah. odd chords. It's, it's another a rock and roll that, song. Yeah, it is. But it's, it's not like any rock and roll that you've ever heard. I mean, it sounds familiar now because we've heard it a million times. But at the time, it was very odd sounding. I mean, I think this is where they really find their way into a really unique voice. Yeah. Uh, in a way that they didn't with War, as good as War is. This is like bizarre. Some of the stuff is really bizarre. And the stuff that you guys have mentioned, like 4th of July, that's bizarre and that didn't work. Bad is bizarre and it knocked it out of the park. Again, so, that's Bono's a tour genius divorce. point. That it's is Bono. exactly correct. It's Bono's tour de force. He, and, he and this is Brian movie. Eno's influence. You know, a lot of this is Brian Eno. For example, Elvis Presley in America. Do you guys know that that is Brian Eno playing the tape for A Sort of Homecoming, the first track on the album, backwards? Yeah. And then telling Bono, you have to improvise lyrics over this backwards track. All of those lyrics are made up on the spot. <laughs> yeah. Did it work? Not for a lot of people. Is it interesting? Yeah. Did they have to go through that to eventually make something like Octone Baby? Probably. Yes. You know, that, that's why I love this album. It's so bizarre and fascinating. And, and the stuff that hit is, is just kind of a miracle. So, um, 
uh, you know, I love this album. I love those tracks. The, the worst song on the album, it's difficult for me to pick because you take any one of them out and it's not the same experiment. Yeah. I mean, you are so dead on that. And the idea, again, that these early U2 albums paved the way for what they became later or paved the way for some of the songs that became iconic later. That, my man, is 100% correct. Uh, <clears throat> if you go and listen to them now and listen to them in context of what the band that you found a way to fall in love with at any point in the future, uh, then those will speak to you. And I think yeah. that's part of the brilliance of this band where, you know, you can dismiss some of their early records or some of their early tracks or whatever, but you can see the groundwork of where they became your band. Or, yeah, definitely. For me, and they you became can, my band. Yeah, You can see uh, like a, you know, a record producer, a record producer, like a standard record producer would look, listen to Bad for the first time and be like, what is this? What yeah. is this? This is not a song. There's no anything. There's no bridge. There's no chorus. There's no, you know, and yet it's just magic, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, and then you guys forward like 20 years later and they're playing Magnificent. You can be like, this is how things started, you know? Yeah. Exactly. So, Matt, you're right. Later, whatever you're 100 percent right on on bad. You, I knew you would encapsulate bad better than I could ever on, on that because it means a lot more to you than it does to me, and it means a lot to me. But uh, you just perfectly summed it up, I think. The um, the thing I love most about bad is that Magnus loves bad, and yeah. then re- required me to revisit it as just a top iconic U2 song. You know, it was it was kind of strange to me because I always loved that song so much. I mean, I gravitated to it immediately, and to to know that other fans appreciate it like I do and recognize the value of it is pretty interesting because that doesn't always happen with me. You know, Patrick, Joshua Tree, the the behemoth, Joshua Tree. What do you think? So Joshua Tree is an iconic album and people that don't like you two love Joshua Tree. Yep. And uh, I welcome them to, <laughs> to that love. Um, but the strength of that album in a lot of ways comes in the B-sides. Um, that's not to say that I haven't loved Streets uh, in concert or something I'm looking for in concert. Um, those are iconic U2 songs. And if anyone loves those songs and those are your favorite U2 songs, I have no objection to that, but Red Hill Mining Town and In God's Country are the best songs on that album. And I can listen to In God's Country any day of the week with however I'm feeling. If it's about sports or politics or uh, movies or whatever, like that is just such a killer song. Um, And I love it so much. And I'm glad that in my sort of appreciation of you two as i mentioned i i kind of started in the mid 90s had to work backwards that when i discovered joshua tree i was able to move over the commercially successful songs which many of their most successful songs i love um but in this particular album i feel like some of their deep cuts were uh were life-changing for me Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're riveting and wonderful masterpieces of songwriting and production and Magical. performance. Magic. Yeah. yeah. It, there is not a bad song on that album. And I, I, I it's passing <laughs> inside. I, um, <laughs> I, Red Hill Mining Town, and this, uh, our mutual friend, my best, my best friend, your best friend, everyone's best friend, 
Joe Havenstrade. He never understood why I liked Red Hill Mining Town so much. And it is, to me, kind of a quintessential, maybe the quintessential U2 song that they never performed live until 2017 when they performed uh, all of, uh, of uh, Joshua Tree live, I believe at a, a small tour they did in England, right? And well, they, re- they played the whole entire album. The whole album. As a, uh, either Joshua Tree tour, or like I think it was the 20th anniversary. Yeah, and it was, it was uh, 30th. And uh, it was the first time they'd ever played it. And to me, that is the quintessential YouTube 80s song, Red Hill Mining Town. Um, really uh, almost tied with me is One Tree Hill, an extremely emotional song about a friend who had died in a motorcycle accident. Um, there is, ba- I mean, I, w- I would say One Tree Hill is basically almost at the level of uh, Red Hill Mining Town for me. Those two songs are just like the perfect U2 for me. There is, there's the combination of mu- uh, musicality and emotion. And Bono is at his emotional best at One Tree Hill. Uh, that scream at the end is the, the screams that uh, uh, ran, in, ran in my heart. You know, that sort of thing. That is amazing to me. And well, I, I genuflected to that song, I should say. I agree, but I think also that in that era, we still had a reverence for that. Like now, if you did that, we'd be like this asshole, you know? Well, it's true. Yeah. I, I mean, I wouldn't, but certain U2 fans would be. Magnus, what do you have I, to say? I, I, you know, I, I just agree with Marnie. One Tree Hill is my favorite song on that album. That's I love it because no other band could make that song. Couldn't have come from anyone else. Mm-hmm. It's perfect. It's also a deep cut in the best way. Sometimes we say, oh, that's a deep album cut as a way of saying, oh, offhand. But the best deep album cuts take the emotions you've already felt listening to the first half of the album and then take you in a deeper, darker direction. Yeah. Yeah. And, Smart and well said. Yeah. And, and, and I, that's what that does for me. You know, after I come out of Red Hill Mining Town and, and um, Trip Through Your Wires, you're kind of like lulled and it's kind of, you're kind of in a happier place and, you know, trip through your wires is kind of jaunty. And then one tree hill comes and you're like, Oh, this is suddenly a meditation on death that's thrust upon me. It, this... I think it, the placement of that song makes that album a deeper experience mm-hmm. um, than it otherwise would have been. I, I think it's an underappreciated U2 song. Um, not quite on the level of bad, but it, it fulfills the same function and is almost in the same place yeah. that bad is on the album, you know, that mid second side. Yeah. Uh, and also, I would just say that this is the album where one of the best parts about being a YouTube fan in the 90s was, or late 80s, that the B sides became a factor. They oh. released so many singles with so many B sides, yeah. and many of you have never heard of them. Yep. You know, but I mean, the sweetest thing was a B side from the Joshua Tree, right. and that is an all time great U2 song. And later they made a video, and I think it was on one of their greatest hits albums or whatever. But the first, it the is, first greatest hits they did. Yeah. yeah. And the video and it, it features Bono's wife, who, you know, Bono met his wife when he was in 
high school or whatever they yeah. call it over the, in Ireland. And, and they, you know, they've been married to this day and, and all of that. But I mean, that video is iconic. And I remember breaking it down with you, Magnus, and, you know, just uh, being aware of it. But that was a B-side of, of that record. And uh, that is where the deep cut, the deep love of YouTube came. It was just like, hey, we can all listen to uh, the Joshua Tree. We can all listen to Streets and other songs on the radio and be like, oh yeah, this is a great band. This is a top rack band in the world. But then they also had 14 other songs they didn't release in America that you could yeah. find one way or another. Oh. And they were of that level. I mean, Spanish Eyes, things like that were songs that if you love you too, you know those songs. And we're that's where be, they started happening. Be, and then the B-sides continued. We're going to be encountering B-sides uh, when we get to uh, Octung Baby with me it, specifically where I think they hit their peak with B-sides, but uh, yeah. It was, um, very fertile, I agree. it was a very fertile period. It was. I will say, uh, unusual for me, I think that the famous and most popular songs on Joshua Tree deserve, deserve the, that, those accolades. Oh, with that. or without you, yeah. I remember you and, and I, uh, you and I watching the, uh, the, the, the classic albums of, uh, of Joshua Tree and, and you're like, Morty, Look at the, the what Edge is talking about with that uh, pattern he's playing, that that counter that counter melody he's playing, uh, as opposed to the the thing. And you were absolutely right, and Edge was absolutely right. That made the song. Yeah, absolutely. It, that you know, and with or without you, streets. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Those are some of the most famous U2 songs, and they are some of the best U2 songs. You know, they're so unique. Uh, it's amazing that they became hits. Sir, sir, excuse me. First of all, With or Without You is U2's Stairway to Heaven. It is known by everyone. It's everyone's yep. go-to. It's everyone's yep. high school relationship, a certain, especially of a certain era. Um, if I never hear that song again, I'll be fine. Uh, I, I agree. Streets is a magical song. And every time I hear it, I hear the meaning behind it and the love behind it. But With or Without You, I'm not jump the gun here is a bottom tier yeah i, I mean I, pop I, song by you too i totally understand that that sentiment i completely get it but on the other hand we only feel that way because we've heard it a million times you know I, it's hard to go back and remember what it was like to hear a song for the first time that didn't sound like anything else you'd ever heard that's true of stairway it's true of with or without you you know um it's a victim of its own success. What what I love That's about fair. what I love about Pat is that he's not afraid to be wrong, and and, and <laughs> this is what... which it's helpful because I've never been wrong, so oh. I don't have to have those fears. <laughs> but we, we can all agree, Joshua Tree is a genuine masterpiece. It is. It is. It, it deserves its place. It deserves. I would give anything general. to be in 1989 and listening to Joshua Tree the first time. Yeah. I would sacrifice whatever you ask for. Morty. Well, speaking of King, King Morty, King <laughs> of Thornton, of, King of King of Thornton. Uh, speaking of 1989, Rattle and Hum, Pat, Rattle and Hum, uh, a a not really studio album, but kind of. Uh, so, um, what? How would you go into thinking about this album? Because it's it really definitely is a another line of demarcation in YouTube. Well, first of all, Morty, it's a film. Okay, it so, is a film. Uh, it it is has a, a soundtrack. It's a pretentious um, film. Rattle and Hum. It, it covers the basis. This is the introduction to why you will love and hate you two at the same time. Um, yes, Edge sing the blues is embarrassing. 
and um, it definitely is indulgent. I mean, these blokes are from freaking Ireland, and they want to claim to be like the sound of Memphis and Elvis and all this. Uh, I object to that, um, and I think that the any derision in that sort of realm is appropriate for them. Yeah. However, you know, desire, Angel of Harlem, um, when love comes to town. Ooh. I mean, those songs are so freaking great. And, you know, I mean, I could give two shits about Helter Skelter, you know, and uh, I think that's a weird thing to include in an album, the first track for that record. Um, and, you know, I mean, they Charles definitely Benson make some, stole like, this from the Beatles. We're stealing it back. Oh. Thank you. <laughs> oh, God, I haven't heard that in a thousand years. And it's like, I just heard it the first time. I'm like, what are you doing? But live versions of some of their great songs and some of the originals that appear on there. Uh, I like, uh, you know, I love God Part 2. I don't really know why the fuck I need to listen to Jimi Hendrix uh, do the National Anthem on a U2 album. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bullet the Blue Sky was a classic live song, which yeah. for me personally, I heard it alive numerous times and it was cool, but I would have, you know, I'll take... Uh, 10 songs over that hold me throw me kiss me kill me at every concert instead of um you know uh, bold blue sky giddy up but uh it did become an iconic part of their uh their world and i all i want is you i think is a you know it's a song that uh resonates with many of us and i think it's just like so well done um so there are so many gems in that again i have a blind spot with that album because it was the first album i listened to uh, of YouTube, but it, it wasn't even current when I was listening to it. But just digging into them, you know, there were songs that I skipped, uh, which I had kind of outlined, and there were songs that were like, "Holy fuck, who is this band? Let me learn more about them." Um, I'm going to go quickly through mine because I really want to hear Magnus's thoughts on uh, Rowland Hum and the next album, actually. So, uh, mine, Angel of Harlem, hands down, my favorite song on Rowland Hum. Uh, and, 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 and if everyone's heard this thing already, Silver and Gold, and it's no really, it's no really any thought, like fault of the song itself, but the Edge Play the Blues thing just, just grates at me. And I think if I hadn't seen the film, I wouldn't have even thought about it. But watching the film and how pretentious and over the top, it like came across in the film, just killed that song for me. Absolutely killed it. So that is where I would say my least favorite is. But by far, by far for me, Angel of Harlem is right up there with my favorite U2 songs. Uh, it's one, they hit it out of the park with that one. Um, and I think that they really captured a, an American sound, which they really failed largely with the album of doing. Um, but and it was with, their goal, yeah, which was yeah, and then they got it right with Agent of Harlem, and I loved it, and I still love it to this day. And I sing at a karaoke, or at least I did when back in the day. Um, but yeah, Angel of Harlem is my high point on that. Uh, Magnus, what is yours? Yeah, I mean, I think you could say Desire, Angel of Harlem, and All I Want Is You are three of the greatest yeah. songs ever. Yeah, no question for me. And, my favorite song is Hawk Moon 269. I'm the only one who's ever had that opinion, I think. Good Lord. <laughs> it's definitely a failed experiment, but I think it was, it, it could have been a bad. It's kind of got that same thing. It's a rhythm and an idea 
you know, if thunder needs rain, like a preacher needs pain, it's like a, a meditation on a riff. And it didn't quite work, but I love the attempt. And it doesn't sound like anything else on the album. That's, or anything I've anymore. never heard anyone say that. It did, I, I mean, I've, no, I've known you for almost 30 years. I've never heard that, that before. That is uh, mind-boggling to me. Well, <laughs> well I'm going to have to go back and listen to it for that reason. And it was yeah. so the lyrics. It's, it's quite interesting. Um, it didn't work. They couldn't stick the landing, you know. It's, but I, I got. It's one of those things where I always love them for making that attempt. You know, they're like, okay, well, this isn't working, but we're going to record this, and I'm going to sing the shit out of it. And I, I really, really love it, and I appreciate it for that reason. But Angel Harlem is oh, it's amazing. Such, so good. So it's so such good. a wonderful song. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, rattling them. I, I would say that you know when we were. Back in the day when we had Rattle and Hum, the movie on VHS, there were some things we watched over and over again. Like there's a great version of With or Without You on there, a great mm-hmm. live version. Mm-hmm. But then we would fast forward through all the wankery. And oh, all there's so much wankery on this. And, you know. <laughs> you guys so, don't like, like that? If you looked at the, you looked at the VHS tape, <laughs> some sections would be worn down from reuse and some sections would be pristine because we never <laughs> Which very much sums up the album. <laughs> It does. Oh my God! All right, Pat. Achtung. Yeah, Achtung's per- a perfect album. It's hard to quibble with anything about it. Uh, mm-hmm. It's, um, I mean, you've got Zoo Station. You've got even better than the real thing, which uh, that video was so <laughs> transcendent in that time. I mean, it's like, how the hell were they doing that? You know, that camera just spinning around them, and it was just so wonderful. I mean, one. Uh, my one of my all-time favorite songs is "Until the End of the World." I mean, that song is perfect. Like, what else do you want in a rock song, in a pop song, in a mm-hmm. U two song? You know, "The Fly." Uh, earlier, I heard uh, my friend uh, Morton Fairchild uh, object to "Mysterious Ways." "Mysterious Ways." After you see it live numerous times, I mean, that is again an iconic U two song. It's so beautiful. Um, and really, from there, it's like hard to find a flaw in the album because, as I said earlier, there's always going to be some that aren't your favorites. But, you know, when you look at the rest of that album, it's like, how do you yell it, uh, you know, trying to throw your arms all around the world or acrobat or whatever. And, of course, also Love is Blindness is like a classic E2 song. You've seen it live. They've played it numerous times. It speaks to you or me. Um, this album is the high watermark for you too. And um, I think that they killed it. And that's what made them the biggest rock band in the world. Again, Joshua Tree made them the Time Magazine cover boys, best band of the 80s or whatever. This song made them, you know, a, a band in the conversation of what happened in the 90s. Interesting because I, uh, I think Joshua Tree made them the biggest band uh, in America and why it's their biggest selling album uh Tung Baby made them the biggest fan in the world. And I struggled with this album. This was this album, as you both know, was an album that I just could not compute with. I it took me until I was about 30 years old before I got it. And now literally every song is a masterpiece to me. My favorite song, though, 
is Lady with the Spinning Head. And it's not even on. B-side, B-side. It's not even on the album. I That's love that album. Song. There is a dance remix of that, uh, that song that is perfect. It's absolutely perfect. And it took me a long time to really appreciate a lot of that about YouTube, but I really, what I really love about YouTube is the, all the B sides. The B sides, when there was B sides, were just perfecto. Yeah. And uh, what, what was this? It's Salome, you know, and uh, all of those songs that came out. I mean, uh, there was a, a mix that our friend uh, here, Pat, made called uh, YouTube Spy Plane. Spy Plane. That was uh, all B sides, and it was amazing. Um, it's not available for uh, purchase. Um, <laughs> DM me. DM me. DM me. Yeah, right. But there's not a bad song in the album. The Fly yeah. is almost the perfect U2 song, basically. Um, Which? It, 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 who's going to ride your wild horses? Another amazing song. Um, yes. Uh, there is just... This and Joshua Tree, I... I, I fail to find bad songs i honestly that's why they're masterpieces i fail to find bad songs on these releases uh but lady with the spinning head i just wish they would have kept it as is instead of like like piecing it in together in different parts of uh of of different songs because honestly lady with the spinning head is a good song and I, I just, I, lo- I love it. And that's what I'm going to go with my favorite. And there's no, no, no bad one on this album. I just. Here, here's how you know Octonio the perfect album. You take a song like Acrobat and you play it in isolation. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. You hear it in the context of the songs that came before. And then leading into the songs that come after. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. In fact, right. it only makes sense for it to be there. Yep. That's what makes it a perfect album. You can't take those songs out of that sequence and have the same experience. Unlike I think that Joshua was even Tree. more true than U2, or uh, Zuropa, rather. You know, like, yeah. that's where they really took that to the next level. Yeah. But go ahead. I, I agree. Uh, but, you know, for me, my favorite song on the album is um, So Cruel. Uh, one got all the attention. I think So Cruel is similar, but better and darker and completely overlooked. Um, and and then it's the best, it's my favorite closer of any U2 album. I love how it just ends with a man in a car with a loaded gun waiting for his lover to come out the door. It's like, whoa. You know, they went really dark and really risky and um i remember listening to the album for the first time in my car with this girl and we just had this silence as as the tape ended you know it's like we didn't even know what to say like it just sat in our stomachs like it was a physical experience you know and yeah and that, you know you just don't have that experience listening to music anymore and then of course we turned it over and started it right away you know, again, because we just were like, what was that? You know, which is the best mm-hmm. type of artistic experience. I don't know what that just happened, but I want it to happen to me again, <laughs> like right away. And it was such a joy to experience that um, and be challenged by a piece of art. And uh, it was just so great. I mean, you know, Very well said. Uh, uh, Magnus, I, this is why I, I value your opinion on this because. For you, reason. 
<laughs> only this. Um, <laughs> um, because there is a, a visceral response to this, that and bad, honestly, uh, that uh, make things make more sense. Because I, I don't think I was willing to listen back in the 90s, and you guys know this very well. I, I was like very, I just don't want to hear it. Um, because I thought you two had strayed too far. And in hindsight, I love a lot of, and I'm hearing finally what you have been saying, Matt. Acrobat, you are absolutely right. Works in context, and it's one of the best in context U2 songs you, sure. could, you, you could ever hear. I, like some of the songs that Unforgettable Fire, I, I understand like that it's kind of like why you like those two because there's some in context to Un Unforgettable Fire that don't make any sense outside of the album. This is very similar to me, and Acrobat's like that. It's like for me, The Fly, I just like, that song is so good. Yeah, it's great. And it makes a ton of sense. And I don't know why they didn't release that as their first single because honestly, to me, that makes more sense than Mysterious Ways. I will not. No, they did. Further. They did. Remember, I said I saw the video for The Fly before the album came out. And at least for me, that was my first experience with Hong Tong. It was a promotional video. Uh, and was that before uh, later, the Mysterious Ways? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. For me, Serious Ways was the commercial release. Yeah. That was the yeah, was the song from that album. It was all over became, and in and the video was was great. And didn't know, and didn't Edge marry the belly dancer in that video? I, he I, didn't I, marry her, Morty. He was a wise man. He just knocked her up <laughs> and and shacked up. Wasn't her name Had Morley or something like that? Yeah, something like that. Um, <laughs> she was an important part of it, the Edge's life for many yes, years. Was. Maybe to this day. Yeah, I don't know. They had children them. together. Yeah. All right. I don't know what this guy's dismissing this value for, but uh, <laughs> yes. so Edge, she Edge was an important part, woman to the Edge. His horrible divorce, and, and they, they tr credit a lot of the darkness of Octone Baby to that divorce. It's true. And then, he met this um, belly dancer, and God bless him, and they had a great time, and a couple of kids, and you know, good on you, mate. It's, yeah. hey, hey, look, if you're if you're gonna if you're gonna do that, I mean, you might as well shack up with a belly dancer from one of your videos. I mean, look, David Coverdale, uh, uh, shacked oh up boy, with, shacked up with Tony Katayan, so <laughs> you might as well. I mean, if they're in you're your never video. gonna have a Morty musical experience without David Coverdale references. This is true. This is true. And I will have him I'll on agree. the podcast. Ogtong is a masterpiece. Yes, it is. Many layers. You can find different things in it every time you listen to it. It can it takes you through a, a range of emotions, which was what all the best art does. Mm -hmm. it's it was stage one of the Zoo TV experience. It's really dark. It, they took I mean, a break yeah. for the holidays. For from, sure. And, and wrote Zuropa. I mean, yeah. okay. Now, right, so Pat, Pat, not to segue you here, Pat, Morty. You go go right into Zeropa because I know you have some feelings about this album. <laughs> I have complicated feelings about Zeropa. I don't love Zeropa. Um, however, I can pull some songs out of there that I do love. Dirty Day, magical. Listen to every remix of that song, and every one of them is is fantastic. Um, Daddy's gonna pay for your crash car is a uh, interesting like YouTube sort of like B side deep cut type music, um, but 
I don't know. I, I don't know to say, but I mean, "Numb" is one of my least favorite YouTube songs. Not to ruin the adventures. That's fine. Uh, but I "Numb," I which was a big video and release from that album. Um, I cannot stand. I never listened to it. If it, if it was being played in concert, which they they don't even play it in concert anymore. But if they were, I would be like, because Edge rapping into the bathroom. Yeah. Edge is singing. The song is terrible. It's stupid. The video is garbage. I mean, I don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, pull those other songs out. Pull "Stay Far Away So Close" or um, you know, "Dirty Day" out of that album, and they're fantastic songs. So I think some of my attitude about Europa, the album, is that it seemed kind of rushed and they did have some good songs, but it wasn't super cohesive. And then one song they pulled out of there for us to all watch on MTV in nineteen ninety four or whatever. Uh numb, I have no interest in. It's, I don't I wish it wasn't a U two song. I don't blame you on that, Pat. And in fact, uh it's the my what it it's in the group of my least favorite U2 songs. And it sucks because Seconds is one of my favorite U2 songs, and that's an Edge song. But this, ugh, Numb is just, ugh, it's just not good. Uh, it's, it, but Stay I like is, it. Stay is one of their best songs. I, Stay is a great song. I, it is legitimately one of their best songs, and it's an actual song. And that's kind of like my feelings on Europa, Zeropa is that there was too few songs. Um, sometimes they, and, and as you were saying, Pat, you know, sometimes it just kind of has this rushed feel to it, uh, which is something that's going to be coming increasingly in common and in pattern with a lot of later U2. Uh, honestly, <laughs> honestly, the uh, stay is ranks up there with some of their, well, some of Bono's best lyrics, I think. Uh, it's a great emotional song. I, 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 if I was going to pick out a song, that, I mean, Daddy's going to pay for your crash car is good. It's okay. Um, Lemon is Dirty like day. one of... Dirty Day is great. Um, I don't like Lemon. Lemon! I, I, uh, <laughs> I can't wait. Also, again, <laughs> and Magnesium, I'm interested in your take here, but Bill Flanagan's book, Until the End of the World, chronicles this era of you two and it is the best it's the best rock and roll book i've read it's really really good there's many i don't want to say it's in the upper echelon of music biographies that you'll ever read and it's about this era this octung to um to zeropa era of you two well, I, you know, my experience is a little different. Would it be fair to say that I was the only one that experienced Zeropa among the three of us as a contemporary? Like, I remember when it came out. And no, I, sure. I, uh, no, I remember when it came out. I was, I, I was anticipating the next U2 album a lot because I'm thinking, okay, it'll be different for Nocturne. And then I, it, Numb came out, and I wanted to throw myself on a spike, basically, is what, well, what my experience was. Here's what I remember. I remember it being a surprise. They were still touring for Octung, and all of a sudden, we were told a new U2 album is coming out next week. They kept it under wraps, and I remember reading about it in Newsweek. Surprise U2 album. <clears throat> and I couldn't have been more overjoyed because I was so deep in the Octung at that time. And uh, Dirty Day 
is one of the best, one of the great U2 albums, uh, U2 songs. They, they played it live at the Zeropa Down Under concert, and it's mm-hmm. an incendiary live. And I never understood why it wasn't a, more of a feature of their live set. It was a great live U2 song. Uh, I love Lemon. I, I, the Lemon is a, such a unique track, and Bono was at the top of his falsetto. I love the title track, Zeropa. So bizarre and, you know... Oh, they wrote this album on the holiday break from yeah. the Octung Baby Tour Zoo TV. You're and trash. it also fulfilled <laughs> it fulfilled <laughs> their contract. Yeah. And so they were like, hey, good news. We just put out this new album in six weeks, and now mm-hmm. we don't owe you any more albums. Um, For four I, years. <laughs> Electric, I mean, what was their label? I mean, eventually it was Interscope. It was, before Island. That. It was Island. Island, yes. Island, Island Records. They fulfilled yeah. their obligation to them and then got a new record deal after that, of which, you know, seven years later, they finally released uh, Pop. I mean, there, there's some downsides to the album for sure, but I just remember being a, a surprise that I was delighted to get. And, you know, it's kind of like something in your stocking on Christmas. Yeah, you, know, you didn't need to have an extra something in your stocking, but you got it, and it was kind of cool to get it. And um, I listened to the whole thing today, and I liked it all the way through. No Fair. downside. Skip a single track. You like them? I mean, I don't like it. It's a, I didn't it's skip a trash it. song. Skip it every time, sir. Fair. This is where Pat and I agree. Yeah, this is where Numb is a terrible song, and they played it on VH1. VH fucking one. All the goddamn time. Yeah, but it was, it was a single. They were nailing the models that were in that video. I let that slide. Not yeah. Bono, okay? He's married to his high school sweetheart. How dare you, sir? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a sweetheart. He's never, he's never played, sir. Ever, never. He's been married <laughs> to the same person since high school. They've never strayed. Um, all right, let's go. Let's skip passengers and go to pop. Uh, Pat, obviously. This is the begins the era of half albums for YouTube, in my opinion. Uh, let's go to you. High water, low water, pop. Uh, pop. Uh, if God Would Send His Angels is a great song, in spite of the fact that it was a soundtrack for a terrible movie, which I don't recall the name of, but it involved Nicolas Cage and Meg Ryan. Oh, um, uh, uh, City of Angels? See, yes, yeah. right. the great Morty, the great Morty comes through. Uh, yes, I will say that um, I I love that song. It stands up. I'll listen to it every time. Discotech makes it work. Um, Mofo, Last Night on Earth, Gone, all fit into like an era for me that was like these songs are enjoyable to listen to. I can get behind them 100. Um, percent But uh, please, one of my least favorite YouTube songs, and they beat it into the goddamn ground. Uh, pardon me, they beat it into the ground, and I we did not as much need as you to. Want, oh, fantastic! Uh, I would have I would have been happy if I'd never. Heard had to endure that song in concert and in other venues of its play. But, and also the worst U2 song, in my opinion, like I'm going to throw away the early songs because they were young, but the song just does not hold up. And I've talked to, I think both of you about this before. The Playboy Mansion is the worst song. I mean, it contains the lyric, if OJ is more than a drink, um, that is so so specific to a particular six weeks of cultural relevance. And as a result, I cannot, I will never listen to that song again. And I mean, that's just one example in the lyrics. 
it just it doesn't hit it's like they're approximating what they're trying to be and i don't want them to be that or the approximation of it you know pop as you pat knows very well and and matt i had a fractious relationship with it and i actually appreciated it a lot more as i got older um that being said uh some of the worst songs you two ever did were on that album and specifically Miami and Playboy Mansion are both atrocious. They're awful, awful, awful songs. I hate them. I'm trying to get a little more into mofo. Okay. I used to hate that. I'm trying to like mother, mother, you know that song? Yeah. It's it's yeah. it's it's trying to be a running song. However, if God will send send his angels, the single version. Yeah. Agreed. Mm-hmm is one of the best songs they've ever done in my opinion uh i love the lyrics um it's emotional it's got everything that i need in the youtube song it's it's anthemic it's got the whole uh u2 of your basically and i will advocate for that song every time even the album version which is not great uh and unfinished um the legend of pop is that paul mcginnis booked a tour before the band was ready to finish the album. I think that was an excuse. Um, And basically they didn't finish some of the songs. Um, Gone. Great, great song. Great YouTube song. Love it. Some of Bono's best vocals are on Gone. Um, There are some songs on that album that I think are... uh, if they did the album like that, like that, it would have been a much more fully realized album. But as ever, I think they took their American audience for granted. I think they thought American audiences would be too stupid to get what they were doing. I think a YouTube has a tendency to do this, and then they half-assed it. If they just would have gone full bore and gone into it and done the whole album like a certain way, rather than half-assing things like they tend to do sometimes, I think they would have been much more effective. Um, but that's my there, pop, pop rant. Fair, but again, there were not bands selling out stadiums in 1998 True. that were not named U2. Good point. You know? Good I mean, point. And granted, there was plenty of, uh, of sort of history to get people involved, but uh, that tour was just... It, it was a benchmark for rock and roll. Where did you see and them? I saw them in this old stadium that's currently been torn down, known as Mile High Stadium. Oh, you saw them at Mile High. Would, did I, Clint go to that rain. one? No, he did no. not. Uh, it was myself and this you know, other gentleman, and uh, we went, and it poured rain, and it was magical. I mean, it wasn't Zoo TV. I didn't see Zoo TV live, but it was my introduction to live rock and roll, and I'll never forget it. And there are subsequent concerts, many of them, several of them. Um, also, also subsequent. Promise. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm going to take this how, chair and throw it at the ground. How dare you? Edit that out, Morty. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you both know, I, was, uh, I had bought tickets for Pop Mart in Miami six or seven months in advance and was unable to make that concert due to unforeseen circumstances. Incarceration. Incarceration. The only U2 tour since 1990 that I didn't see live yeah. Yeah. because of those unforeseen circumstances. 
I agree with God will send his angels. I agree with gone. I agree with discotheque. Um, the best song from that era that wasn't on the album, in my opinion, uh, there's two north and south of the river, which Ooh, was a big, great song. Great song. Amazing, it's a cover. Amazing vocal performance. I know, but it's great. Amazing vocal performance. <laughs> and uh, also hold me, throw me. You know, that was, that came out. Oh, I'm so right? glad you brought that up. That's from the Batman soundtrack, yeah, that's uh, which was stolen by Seal. Isn't that more uh, of an Octung? Kiss from a Rose. Yes, it was cut I think from Octung. It was Octung, left over from Octung, but yeah. they definitely played it in the Pop Mart era. And, it, okay. and they did so with extreme Batman animation and such, and it was great. I mean, great that, song. that is a YouTube song. One of their song. best songs, yes. I hate when band songs end up on soundtracks even though that they are like iconic songs of that band and they and especially considering that that particular batman should basically be lost to history but um Mm -hmm. but that song is fantastic and you two and and it's the perfect band to do it era song but i always associate it with pop because they played it exactly and that's a great point Mangus, yeah, because so I, it was it was between Zuropa and Pop when we were waiting for something from them, and finally sure. they came out at, with basically a deep track on, Absolutely. as I mentioned, the Kiss from a Rose from Seal, Bat- but, Batman Forever soundtrack. Batman Forever should be never mentioned again. Uh, <laughs> should we do Batman's good. before the Christopher Nolan? Sorry. I, on al- uh, the album that I love that is interesting, I wish they would have finished as if you wear that velvet dress which is a phrase referring to heroin addiction, I believe. Yes, yes. And yep. I remember reading that they had recorded a version for it for Octung, but they discarded it because they said, Edge said it was, quote, too gothic. So they re-recorded it for a pop. And the pop version is not a finished song. It's more of an idea. Um, I wish I could have heard the original version. It sounds like it would have been an intriguing addition to Octung. But maybe it couldn't have fit. But anyway, I, I always wonder what that song would have sounded like if they had actually finished it. Here's a puzzle. Here, but it's, it's a throwaway album. Here's a puzzle. How many U2 songs uh, are about heroin? I think there's at least five. <laughs> well, there's a lot of songs. Yeah, uh, Bad. Um, there's another one on Unforgettable Fire. Uh, there's one on uh, Joshua Tree. Um, um, about it, which uh, was like a heroin uh, had inf- infiltrated a complex in Ireland. Um, I see seven towers, but I only see yes, that one. Uh, okay, what? <laughs> oh my god, it's gonna bug me. Um, and then, of course, you know, it, it's just running, running, saying so. It's just thank you, running, saying so. Yes. Uh, it's just these songs like love that song. Why didn't I never running a sand still is a great song? It's none of us mentioned it, and it's amazing. It's it's amazing song, <laughs> but that's why I keep saying that perfect album. Um, so we're gonna get out of pop. Obviously, that's a controversial album. We come to all that you can't leave behind. Here's where we start getting into more definitively half albums, and uh, Pat. Your relationship with this album, you obviously like it more than Matt and I do. And I'm going to stop at uh, uh, a certain point here because once we get into some later albums, it's going to be a lot harder to uh, to do what we're doing here. But uh, I say we kept, 
discussion with all you can't leave behind. Okay, that's a good idea. Okay, I mean, I don't disagree with you, Matt, and um, but I will say this about this album, um, all that you can't leave behind. It, first of all, when I heard it for the first time, it blew my mind. It, again, the bridge between the commercial success of an album like Joshua Tree and then all that you can't leave behind is, I mean, if if nothing had come in between it would have seemed like a perfect sort of like congruent journey. Um, And like I said, I love Octung Baby and I would never want that album not to exist, but the best U2 song ever, and not to spoil any sort of discussion that happened in the first or later, the best U2 song um, is Beautiful Day. Beautiful Day is a perfect song. It's the most perfect pop song. It's a perfect U2 song. The lyrics are perfect. I've seen it live a hundred times and it's magical. Beautiful Day is all you need to hear. If you're introducing someone to U2 for the first time, play this song. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, I I hope you guys can find a problem with it. Um, (laughs) And the other songs on that album, I mean, Walk On was just so iconic. I mean, it was it became a 9-11 song. It was performed on the 9-11 Tribute to Heroes, I believe it was called, with mm-hmm. Clapton or um, Ringo Starr, whatever the hell it was. But uh, That's Magical. Elevation was the name of the tour. It's such a, a, a perfect rock and roll song of that era. And then for me personally, like I get into the In a Little While and uh, Wild Honey and Kite. Those are all just like perfect Bono U2 songs that I found to be so wonderful and live. They were beautiful as well. Um, You know, there's things like New York and Grace and When You Look at the World. They're U2 songs. They're fine. I don't have any affection for them personally. Um, I don't know that they really stand up that well, but that album is a Mount Rushmore U2 album. And uh, it's both a victim of the time that it came out and a very sort of changing time uh, in culture. But it is a fantastic rock and roll album for a band that was at that point in their 40s, late 40s or so. Um, It's interesting because uh, both of you guys and our friend Joe – I associate you two with you guys. So it's hard for me to emotionally detach myself from these songs. I associate you two with Matt. I associate uh, with, uh, with Magnus. I associate with Pat. I, so- I associate it with Joe. And one of the reasons I do is because it was d- during an era where they were their biggest. And not only that, they were at their most vital. And I think they lost, uh, I, I think this is the last of their vitality. And I think that Beautiful Day represents the last of that uh, vitality from U2. Um, U2 became a, uh, something different as of Atomic Bomb, which I still enjoyed, uh, but it was different. Uh, Although you can't leave behind, they were still, uh, they had that vitality and that vitality was crystallized with Beautiful Day. Um, I feel like those two albums are the same in a lot of ways. Like if that was a double album and we never heard from you two again, that would have been fine with me. Yeah. Uh, You know, and again, I'm I'm a U2 apologist. I'll, I'll find value in their later albums too. But those two albums were so good. And I have difficulty separating the two 
because when you get into vertigo or miracle drug or you know city of blinding light or all because of you from the next album like those combined could have made just such a wonderful double disc you know mm. and granted there are some years between the two of them but um i find the two to be sort of synced up well and it was almost five years between the two yeah. and uh as matt pointed out very astute uh, as uh, magnus pointed out really astutely in the previous <laughs> just don't laugh at me uh, guy. <laughs> and it's very astutely in the um previous segments uh vertigo is kind of like an extension of what they were doing on all that you can't leave behind but it became sure. more crashly commercial and that's really really what it was and so that is where that kind of ends for me but coming back to all that you can't leave behind it's their last vital album it really is and uh my favorite album, my favorite uh track on the album is kite and our friend joe always, that's another track he was like i can't believe marty i can't believe you hate you like that song so much and i'm like the last of the rock stars when hip hop drove the big cars became such a predictive line for everything that came in the two thousands. And I don't think Bono knew it at the time. It was certainly true for what he was experiencing at the time, but it became even more true later. And I just, I, at, at, you know, in my well into my forties right now, I really feel that song more than I did even back when I was 20, you know, 23, when I was listening to that song, you know? To me, to me, that album is the last time they felt unforced. Yeah. It felt natural. <clears throat> Everything that came later, even the good stuff, <clears throat> felt like it took work to get there. There was an exuberance and a spontaneity to all that you can't leave behind that I loved and I think a lot of people have responded to, even some of the weaker tracks. Um, but to me, that was the last time it felt like something spontaneous had come through that they I'm were just, really excited to I'm not, share. You know, I'm remiss to interrupt you, but I, mean, I just feel like, you know, having to dismantle an atomic bomb, like, follows through on the things that happen on that album. Like, I get it if from <laughs> after that you want to say that, Magnus. But, I mean, those... Vertigo, City of Blinding Light. These are, Those are good YouTube. songs. Miracle These Drunk are amazing songs. Yeah. They were hard. <laughs> Miracle Drunk is a wonderful song. Original The Species. Listen to that. When's the last time you listened to that? It's a magical YouTube uh, song. Week. I love it. I love it. Yeah. It's a great so song. I it's think one that of the it's last fair to group those two yeah. albums together as the sort of like ultimate YouTube completion of their sound and their. Um, but, but Atomic Bomb was more rocky. It was definitely yeah. more rocky. That's than, fair, but yeah. I mean, also, all these albums, as we talked about, have to be taken in the context of the time in which they're released, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And All That You Can't Leave Behind, How to Dismantle Atomic Bomb, those songs blew away whatever else was going on in music at that time. Fast forward to their later albums, which we're not even going to bother discussing, uh, they basically culturally irrelevant at that point. Right? But, you know, on but Atomic these, Bomb... When a man loves a woman is the oh, song, God, song so I bad. hate the most. Oh. It's so bad. You guys it's know, who, a... you know who likes that song? Joe. Joe. Yeah. Joe loves that song, and I'm like, how? 
how do you like that song so much, right? This is, a, by the way, for the podcast listeners, this is someone you don't know, but <laughs> we, a mutual friend of ours, but it, it is, it is. It's also called A Man and a Woman. A Man and a Woman, yes. And <laughs> it is, it is a awful, awful But song. it's sandwiched on that record by All Because of You okay. and Crumbs from Your Table, which I'm fine it's okay. with. I like yeah, it. It's okay. Um, yeah. Good song. And then. And then uh, original of the species, you know. Original of the Those species were... is a great song. I love that song. Yeah. No, there's mm-hmm. great stuff on on Atomic Bomb. There's no question, but it didn't have the. I I never felt again like you two believed in their material, like they did in, in all that you can't leave behind. Well, they had uh, they went through like ten million producers <laughs> subsequently, <laughs> especially like would they try Rick Rubin on No Line Horizon? And uh, it didn't work. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I would love to. I would love to hear those experiments. I think there was only one song that ended up on No Line that was uh, Rick Rubin. Um, <laughs> I, I heard those whole sessions were scraps. Uh, well, also there. Ha- yes. But how many uh, Rick Rubin songs ended up, ended up on No Line? I think it was one, right? Wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, it was a small handful. <clears throat> I mean, I, I, it was another example of the band doing experimental things and then you know deciding to put it on the album or whatever i guess was their <laughs> was their choice but um it seems to me that up to that point they were working pretty difficult or you know pretty well uh to find things that were congruent with their message um but yeah up to that i don't, I don't have a lot of defense for their future for their future albums <laughs> <laughs> great and then, then he walks away um, <laughs> um so yeah so this is kind of gonna conclude our journey through youtube and I, I um one of the reasons i wanted to have these two guys on here is quite quite frankly i can't think of youtube without thinking of these guys um they are my best friends they are lifelong friends that i'm very privileged to have uh through a uh, through a lot of years uh, and a lot of different ups and downs through just various life experiences. And I can't think of you two without thinking of these guys. And that's kind of what binds me to YouTube, to be honest with you. Uh, that is exactly what I think of when I think of you two. And I think of my friends and I think of the, well, the times I had. That's the great thing about you too. You know, I think Bono said it really put it really well when he said that when people cheer our songs in concert, they're not cheering us. They're cheering their own lives. Yep. They're cheering the people that the songs remind them of, the memories they have from when they were young, when they first heard our songs. That's a really, you know, sometimes Bono really has a, a way of putting things that is amazing. And um, uh, we all have that relationship with you too, I think. That's what's special about them. Um, that is all- why... I struggle to dismiss them as some do due to their current work. Um, I feel like you too, they like reach their pinnacle. Um, and maybe it's with how to dismantle atomic bomb or, you know, early two thousands work and the things they did after that, there were some things that were so interesting to me, but they didn't like elevate the musical experience the way that all their other albums did. And so, um, you know, I don't want them to be 
dead. I don't want them to stop stop operating. I don't want them to stop doing live shows. But I don't give a shit about innocence and experience and things like that um, because I feel like there's nothing that they can do that's going to make me feel like I felt when I heard Octung Baby or Pop or All That You Can't Leave Behind. Well, they recently Pets, covered uh, Stairway to Any Heaven. of those bad so. albums. Like now everything else is just kind of filler. <laughs> it's and even worse. So I don't like pay attention to it, but I don't like hate them for it. Or yeah. It's even worse. I want them to still tour. They never, think they're all the washed up losers. I mean, they're still one of the, I mean, for me, they're the most influential music musical act of my lifetime. Well, sure. uh, it, uh, as you know, probably, I, I don't know if I sent you this, uh, the, that video, but they did cover Stairway to Heaven. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. That was really sad for me because at one point in my life, that would have been the most amazing thing for me to find in here. And I didn't even bother listening to it. Well, it's, it's, it was a throwaway. Do you know why? Because I didn't have to listen to it. I heard it immediately. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't exciting. I, I don't know why I just, but if, if 30 years ago, if you told me, there's a recording of you two covering Stairway. It would have been the holy grail to find that. And now I'm like, yeah. It's look, we're all in our forties. We're not our experience, our innocence and experience with you two is completely different than it was in the nineties or the eighties. And but we still like them. We still love what they put out, but we don't experience them in the same way. And it's hard to. It is hard to experience the same level of uh, excitement that it was when, like when Matt described uh, Zuropa coming out uh, or when Pat first heard uh, Rowland Hum. It really is hard. But you still like them because you associate them with, uh, I associate them with Pat and with uh, Magnus here and with joe and it is it is i guess the memories and the good times that really bind you together and makes you want to experience new stuff from that band but the songs are good too yeah it's not for that if yeah. the songs weren't good we wouldn't it, they wouldn't have helped form those memories very true very in relationship true. you know <clears throat> it's a weird combination of talent um integrity and relationships you know that form that it's like a scent you know you smell a scent and you're like oh that reminds me of what's her name from the fifth grade a, a good song is like that you know but the song has to be good well as as bono said freedom has a scent it's the top of uh, like the top of the newborn baby's head yeah by the way he tried that lyric out in like five different songs yeah he did didn't he <laughs> pat you still there Pat, I don't think Pat can hear us. I don't think he can. Pat, Pat, can okay. you hear us? I couldn't hear you for a few, but now I'm back. Sorry. All right. We were talking about freedom has a scent, like a top of a newborn baby's head. I mean, <laughs> uh, personally, I've had a couple of newborn babies, and uh, both times that I did so, that song spoke to my soul. I love that song. It's a great yeah. song. It's a great How letter. dare you? Uh, yeah, I mean, and... How can you argue with that? I mean, freedom. I mean, a newborn baby's head is like fucking magic, and freedom is as well. And 
Uh, you know, speaking of B-sides, that, that lyric was used in uh, Native Sun, I think, which was the original mm -hmm. version of Vertigo. Yeah. You know, and, and you hear that in like the baby sessions too. They'll try the same lyric with different riffs or the diff same riff with different lyrics till they find the right combination. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to hear that process. Well, I mean, Vertig Vertigo yeah. is a, a song that emanated from Bono going to a club and seeing a person in there with a cross around their neck. And that was the extent that was, that was vertigo. And it makes you wonder like, what would that have been before? Like, <laughs> would it have been better? Uh, because vertigo's the lyrics are kind of, eh, but uh, would, would it have been better in different versions? Hello, hello. There's a place called, called vertigo. <laughs> like, what are you missing? Uh, that you can apply that to anything. There, 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 if you dig into deep side, deep B sides of YouTube, YouTube, you find all kinds of songs that you recognize the sound of, but were something else to begin with. And so, I think that that's the, uh, a perfect example of that. Well, like Lady with the Spinning Head, because there's yeah. like there's just like five songs that that came out of. <laughs> so yeah, true. Uh, uh, until the end of the world, if you, if you listen, to, well, you can find the Octone Baby sessions that were stolen online. It's a fascinating listen because clearly the Until the End of the World riff was one of the first riffs that Edge had, because they tried that riff with tons of different lyrics, including lyrics that became other songs. You know, they tried to find that right one with that lip, yeah. that lip. It was really interesting. That's a great song. I... And it's why it's worth digging into deep tracks of you too, because you find versions of songs that you recognize from albums that started off as something else. The only song that I could see why it didn't make a different song was Salome. I, I just, I don't see how that song would have worked on various different levels and it worked as a B-side. And there's a lot of songs that they have put out on as b-sides that work ex exclusively as a b-side you know yeah. where did it all go wrong yeah right. exactly there, there's songs like that that just kind of go fit into that that when you think about it pragmatically the better version of it made the album it just for some credit reason to give credit to a band that releases their b-sides you know yeah. that has yeah. i mean we've heard all these songs like most people that know you too, that hear you talking about Lady with a Spinning Head, are like, what in the hell is that? This is very true. You know? <laughs> but that and Alex descends into hell for a bottle of milk and right. various other like big time U2 songs. <laughs> I first never heard it on albums. At uh, a laser light show. I was like, what is this? It was like a U2 laser light show. And all of a sudden, there's a song I never heard before. I'm like, are you kidding me? Oh, that's amazing. And I, I tell you what, guys, I'm going to end the recording of this right now. I appreciate uh, Pat and Magnus joining me on this adventure through you two. Uh, this has been a great, great, great experience. Uh, uh, I will have uh, both of these guys back on the Gen X Music Show again. Uh, it'll be, it'll be, a, it'll be a, an amazing time. And I hope you guys all enjoyed this. Thank you all for joining me. I appreciate you joining me.